All right, let's start with some follow-up, and let's talk about some very interesting tweets that some some like super nerd posted. John, John, John Circusa, uh, uh, Circusa, John Circusa posted these tweets. I can't tell if you're doing like a Roderick on the line riff, or you're trying to get back a Gruber with that. <laughs> no, none of the above. Actually, <laughs> just an indirect hit. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I, I was not trying to get back. In fact, if anything, I, I need to go on Gruber's show not to yell at him and, and remind him what my name is. But actually, to yell at him and you, come to think of it, for Uh-oh. your absolute all three, all three of you, the two of you and Gruber. Now I'm all fired up for your absolute slander of sweet tarts. Sweet tarts are delicious. Yes, they're just you know compacted sugar, but they're delicious. And all of you, oh, sweet tarts aren't very good. This is a big dividing line here between people who can tolerate just like just give me sugar oh. squished into shapes, <laughs> and people who understand that all forms of chocolate are superior to that. I don't know if I'd say that. I mean, I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, do you mean like even like the plain Hershey bars that taste like wax? And when I think about it, I'm like, no. yeah, probably. Like when I was a kid, it, when, you know, you go through the Halloween candy and it's you start dwindling and you can always kind of notice like towards the end of the Halloween candy, let's look what's left. You know, that, that really shows you what you actually care about. <laughs> and I think what would be left would be sweet tarts and the oh. stupid, disgusting, waxy Hershey bar would be gone. Not that I enjoy the Hershey bar, but when you're down to that desperation, you're like, oh, what's left? And you're looking, and you see sweet tarts, and you see that terrible chocolate bar, you're like, oh, I guess I'll eat the chocolate bar. You absolute <laughs> monsters. I cannot believe it. Sweet tarts are wonderful. No, I feel like this is an un- this is your this perfectly, perfectly fits with your, uh, let's say, I was going to say unrefined. I'm trying to think of a more charitable <laughs> word than unrefined. But I'm going to say your unrefined palate. How about mm-hmm. you just give me sugar and paint it a color? I'll eat it. There's flavors. Now, are you sure you're not thinking of Smarties? Because Smarties are legitimately no. I know what you're talking. I understand. I mean, you're right. It's there's a, there's a hierarchy, but it's still as we discussed in Slack today. It's it's a hierarchy starting from the bottom with Pixie Sticks, which is like let's not disguise this at all, uh, and then working your way up to Fun Dip, and then you've got Smarties, oh, and then so you've got good. Sweet Tarts, and you know. Oh yeah. Now, did did you enjoy the like white stick in Fun Dip, or were you a like, oh, that's just a delivery system and nothing else sort of person? I mean, when I was eating Fun Dip at all, I think we'd all take a bite of the stick towards the end when you decide you're done with the thing. But oh. like like I said in the Slack, Fun Dip was kind of a project at least. Yeah. Well, Fun Dip is great. I love Fun Dip. Yeah. It's it's an activity and a candy. <laughs> exactly. And as a candy, it's not great. But like when you can combine the two things, I mean. Oh, so good. did you two? I guess you two probably missed this. Um, but did you two have candy cigarettes? Yeah, I, I, I never enjoyed them, but I was familiar with them. Did you get the tail end of candy cigarettes? I don't or? think I was allowed to buy them, but they were in the store. <laughs> Ice Cream Man had them. When oh, I was wow. a kid. That's yikes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it is kind of amazing how long they lasted. And like now they still make things that look just like them. They just like rebranded them as some other like candy sticks or something. But it's 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 definitely candy cigarettes. <laughs> Did they get rid of uh, the the uh, sim- the simulated chewing tobacco at Big League Chew? Remember that? You know, I never got that connection. Oh, it's good that you never got that connection. You that one one harm of being a kid, and whenever you were a kid, it was avoided by you. But yeah, that was the connection. I did not realize that either, to be honest with you. It had it on the, the picture on the cover. It's because we didn't know about chewing tobacco. If you live somewhere where more adults chew tobacco, I suppose you would maybe be familiar with seeing the the cartoonish adult on the cover with a big lump in their cheek. Well, in all fairness, like you know, I people think Ohio is like that when I when people hear I'm from Ohio, and much of Ohio was, but it started about one mile away from where I lived. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I loved Big League Chew. Was it the one that the, the gum lasted forever, but the flavor lasted like four chews? Is that what? Is I mean, that that's, right that's all gum. Yeah, isn't that all gum? <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> but especially extremely cheap gum that they sell to kids, yes. 
Yes. Oh, and it was it was like the little strings. Oh, yeah, it was lots of surface area. So you're going to really deplete the uh, the whatever chemical they put on it that tastes good for two seconds, and then all you've got left is just a ball of tasteless gum. <laughs> but at least it doesn't give you mouth cancer, right, kids? <laughs> right, because massive amounts of sugar have no bad health effects. <laughs> it's not. It's better that massive amounts of sugar is better than chewing tobacco for your mouth. That's true. That. It's it's a I mean it's a low bar. You may, all your teeth may fall out, but you won't die of mouth cancer. Oh, God. Well, here we go. All right. So, John, all kidding aside, you put in a bunch of tweets. I'll put in. Where are you putting them in? I don't know. You posted a bunch of tweets. <laughs> I'm a mess tonight. You, po- you posted a bunch of tweets, and they were the uh, graphic representations of kind of the, the um, theorizing that you were doing on the show last week about what would a very large M1 look like, or perhaps a series of M1s all kind of squished together. So can you talk us through this, please? I accepted my own challenge uh, last week when we were talking about those rumors, saying like, okay, well, you know, assuming it's on the same process size, uh, here are the rumors, here's how many cores of the different kinds of the things have. I was like, just multiply that out. Just, you know, we know what an M1 looks like. And again, with the caveat that I put 20 times on Twitter to try to defend against people yelling at me about this. Yes, we understand that Apple's marketing diagrams of its chips bear very little relation to the actual layout of the chip, right? But it's what we have to go on. And ballpark-wise, the area of an M1 as represented by this thing is a reasonable approximation. If you just say, well, what, however big an M1 is, this square equals an M1, and you know how, ma- how much stuff an M1 has in it, so you can get kind of a back-of-the-envelope thing of how big this is going to be. And I talked about it on the show last week. Uh, but shortly after the show, I said, you know what? I have the graphic of the M1 from the shirts that we just sold. I should do what I said and just multiply that out and see what it looks like. So the first thing I did was I just made a big chip that is like the highest end Mac Pro when they were saying. So, you know, the M1 has four high performance cores, four high efficiency cores and an eight core GPU. And the big honking Mac Pro rumor one is 32 high performance cores, eight high efficiency cores and 128 core GPU. So I made that and I called it M1 XL, which is not a real name. It's just a joke. Like, look, it's extra large just to see how much bigger it would be in area. Again, ballpark, because it's not as if it's a straight multiplication of the things because there's other ancillary stuff that ties all this together and it's more complexity that we'll get into just to see the size difference. So the size difference, as you would imagine, is massive. We'll put a link to the tweet. You can take a look at it. It's way, 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 way bigger, right? And then shortly after that, I said, okay, yeah, but they're not actually going to make a chip that looks like that because, you know, it's... Not only is it huge, but it is, if you look at the little diagram, it really, you know, this, if they made a chip that was like this, it would only be used in that high-end Mac Pro, and it's not like they're going to make one for the high-end Mac Pro, one for the lower-level Mac Pro, one for the MacBook Pro, like, they don't want to make custom chips for every single one of these things, as evidenced by the fact that, you know, even though we don't know what they're going to do in the high-end, we do know that on the low-end, they literally use the same chip in, like, (laughs) tons of computers, right? So, if you're expecting them to make a totally different custom chip for each one of its high-end computers, uh, that's not going to happen, right? And anyway, what the rumor said, and what Marco was trying to get me to understand last show, but I wasn't quite getting, um, was that's not what they're going to do. Uh, they're going to make these these chips with these code names that didn't make any sense to me, and I had some info from uh, folks after the show telling me what the whole chop versus die thing meant. Apparently, chop is a term of art in the silicon world where you... It's not what Marco was surmising as, like, binning, where... You take a th- uh, you know a thing that has thirty two GPU cores and you just disable sixteen of them or whatever. A chop is, and this is my understanding from a small amount of feedback I got. It's when you take a design that you have for a chip, and you say, "Well, we want to make a chip that's like that, but with less stuff." 
but we don't want to design a whole new chip. So is there a way we can essentially take like the, the blueprint for that chip and just chop part of it off and, you know, sort of tie up the loose ends, right? As a, as a cheaper way to get a smaller chip without having to design an entirely new chip. So the weird names that I couldn't make sense of last show were Jade C. Die and Jade C. Chop. Jade C. Die was rumored to have eight high-performance cores, two high-efficiency cores, and 32 GPU cores. And then Jade C. Chop is exactly like Jade C. Die, but with half the GPU cores chopped off. As in, they wouldn't, you know, it's not like they make it big and cut it off. They cut it off in the blueprint. And then what they print is a thing with 16 GPU cores, right? And hopefully all of them work, right? So it's not as if you make the bigger chip and cut off the end of it. The whole point is you want to make a smaller chip, but you don't have to design an entirely new chip. You just, you're able to take an existing design and chop part of it off. That's my understanding. If, if I'm still wrong about this, someone in the industry, please let me know. But either way, with those code names in hand, now we have what I think is a reasonable graphic representation of what that rumor was saying. Again, we don't know if these things are true or not, right? So here we've got the M1. Uh, we'll try to put this in, in the article. We'll try to put this in, as chapter art, but I do have a link in the show notes to a high-res ping version of this. Yeah, it's going to be very small to be chapter art. Also, thanks for making it a tall rectangle. I, well, I don't know. I, it's difficult to get all these things in. But anyway, we'll, we will put a link in the show notes to the tweets and also a link to the high-res version if you want to see all the stupid little lines and stuff, right? Anyway, here is a, a you know a reiteration of the rumor, right? And this gets back to what Marco was saying in the last show, that Apple's going to have essentially two designs. One is the M1. We know what it is now, right? It's out there, right? And the other one is this Jade C die thing. And the Jade C die is... Like I said, eight high-performance cores, two high-efficiency cores, and 32 GPU cores. And that is a new chip design. This doesn't look like an M1. It looks, you know, like an M1 with different numbers of stuff in it, right? But it's bigger. It's bigger than an M1. And that Jade C die is the building block for all of their Pro chips. That would be the one that's in the high-end MacBook Pro. And for the low-end MacBook Pro, you get a chopped version of that. It's exactly Jade C die, but they take the blueprints of that. They chop off half the GPU cores and you get a little bit smaller chip. It's actually not that much bigger than an M1. And that you put in your low-end MacBook Pro and maybe your, your low-end uh, iMac Pro or something like that, right? And then for the Mac Pro rumored chips, Jade 2C die is just two Jade C dies, right? And in probably a chiplet type arrangement, I don't think they would actually print these as on a single die. The whole point is... They just have this one design and they have to have some kind of, you know, interconnect fabric for them. We talked about this many, many shows back. Like, would Apple do chiplets? Like, AMD does chiplets because they it's, it's cheaper to print a bunch of smaller chips and then put them on a, yeah, on a fabric type thing in a single package or whatever versus just making one big die. Um, and some of the feedback we got was like, well, AMD has to do that because they can't afford to have the fancy expensive process that Apple can have. But Apple wouldn't do that because it's worse in lots of ways. And I think that's mostly true for things like the M1 and Jade C die, which will be, in fact, a single die. But once you start getting up into the higher end ones, I think Apple will end up not wanting to make a new custom single die for this, but rather end up doing something like chiplets or some other way where you take multiple multiple dies and put them in the same package and connect them together. So... Uh, Jade 2C die is two <laughs> Jade C dies, and Jade 4C die is four Jade C dies. So that's the way Apple can get away with making just two chips, the M1 and whatever they're going to end up calling Jade C die, and then they just either chop Jade C die or multiply it out by twos or fours for their high-end computers. And that covers their entire range. 
So, I'm, so tell me again, walk me through what each of these is. So Jade C die is the baseline, and you expect that to go into which devices? Right. So Jade C die is, is the building block, and that is the other die that Apple has designed. They've got all the little traces. They're going to print that. They can. That's, that's the other design they do because that is its its own design. It's got four high performance cores, two high efficiency cores, thirty two GPU cores, and who knows what other things. And it probably supports more Thunderbolt lanes, you know, supports more memory, like all the things that you'd want out of a high-end design. That's the thing they designed. That's the other thing they designed. From that design, they have to get chips for all of their high-end computers. So the first one is a step down from that because that one has 32 GPU cores. You get the chopped version that has 16, and that would go in the low-end MacBook Pro, right? Gotcha, okay. Right, and the high-end MacBook Pro would, you know, whatever. I don't know how they're going to divvy it up, but you've got two MacBook Pro-ish chips. As you can see from the sizes, and you'll see in the picture, those are both MacBook Pro-ish size chips, depending on how important GPU is to you, right? And then what do you do for the Mac Pro? Well, you take multiples of those, either two of them or four of them, and you put them together in the same package or, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. some kind of, you know, using chiplets or something like that. I suppose they could try to make them on one die, but if you look at the size of the dies, that seems highly unlikely to me. But either way, the whole idea is that rather than being like we said in the last show, like the idea that these would be like four actual chips separated by several inches on the motherboard, extremely unlikely, but they could be chiplets inside the same package for sure. So J2C die, I imagine, would only be in like the low-end Mac Pro, probably the one that I would buy, right? The quote-unquote low-end Mac Pro, right? <laughs> um, and then the 4C one would be the top-of-the-line 40 core giant monster thing that nobody would buy right i buy it <laughs> of course I mean, you would. yeah i suppose maybe like here's the problem because the gpu is tied up in this maybe i would end up getting the four c die thing <laughs> See, i'm the opposite i'm like can i just have four of the c chops please <laughs> and because I, I don't need all those gpu cores it, they're tied together though right so because again if yeah. you want gpu power rivaling uh, uh, nvidia 3090 you have to get the 4c because the, the the next step down is half the gpu cores if you don't care about gpu cores like marco but you just want 40 cpu cores you have no choice you can, they come together because again they're on the same die so you know and same thing with these things like where would the ram be probably high bandwidth memory stacked all around it um, there's lots of nuances of this, how Apple can save money. Like one way they're saving money is by not making a custom chip for the Mac pro, by just making essentially a chip for the MacBook pro and being able to do chiplets or something similar to stamp that out to the other, uh, higher end Macs. But then you also have to, you know, say, what is the maximum amount of Ram and how is that tied to the other things? Um, you can use a cheaper process for things like the memory controllers. Um, like not everything has to be printed at five nanometers, like the main JC die would be. You can stack the high bandwidth memory because memory gets less hot than the rest of the chip. So you can't really stack those, you know, your actual CPU and GPU dies because I'm not sure how you'd get cooling there. But you can potentially stack RAM to get higher RAM amounts. Anyway, this is this is all based on rumors. We don't know if it's true, but it is. this is a graphical representation of the rumor we just talked about, and I think it is eminently plausible. Um, and then there, we'll put some more links in the show notes about chiplets and multi-chip modules and stacking things where they have a bunch of nice diagrams of showing how you can sort of use your expensive parts to make a bunch of uh, you know cpu gpu dies stick them in, in chiplets inside a single package stack the ram all around it it starts to look a lot like something that is conceivable to be in the next mac pro yeah like once we learned what a chop was <laughs> i feel like <laughs> you know th- that was like the final piece in the puzzle of reading into these code names like it's right it's right there in the names like what these are going to be and it's it's pretty obvious like how they're going to use these or how they're going to you know sell them in in what products and everything and to me really the only questions are you know the last half of which i was talking about like 
how are these packaged? Are, you know, are the 2C and 4C, are those actually single dies that are just really big and really expensive? Um, which I think from from our previous research into like feasible die sizes that exist in the, in the industry, it does seem like it is possible and and reasonable to make like to make the jade 4c die as one giant die if it's for a high-end expensive low volume product like the top of the line mac pro yeah the, the good thing is they're coming from Xeons, which through no fault or thanks to apple is horrendously expensive because that's how intel how much intel charges for them so as long as apple undercuts you know intel's giant profit margin on these Xeons, they could conceivably you know, excuse the incredible expense of trying to put this on a single die. I'm not sure that they'll do that, though, but we'll see. Oh, Apple will pass the expense along to us. Don't worry. Well, as I'm saying, like, <laughs> they, they can they can undercut the cur- price of the current Mac Pro and still get huge profits, right? But it may be more, like, they may not, I don't, this is a good test. How much do they care about the Mac Pro? Because it's surely cheaper to do them as chiplets, and I don't think it would be that much worse that Apple would care about it, but we'll see what they do. I mean, they are called die, Jade 2C die and Jade 4C die, so you can't tell. Does that mean it's just two Jade C dies? Or does that mean it's a die called Jade 2C, which is like two Jade Cs? I don't know. These code names I still don't like. But anyway, I drew them as like single blocks. Again, these are not realistic anything. I'm just trying to sort of show uh, square millimeters, I guess, relative size. And if you squint at them, you can kind of see how many components are in them. So I'm curious, just as a quick bet that we can revisit later when, when we're all hilariously wrong, um, what do you think is the cheapest Mac Pro price that you can get the 4C die in? I, oh, the 4C die? Oh, that's hard. I, I, I was, I've been thinking about whether the base price for the Mac Pro will go down or not. I'm going to say the cheapest 4C die config you can get is $12,000. What's the base price of the Intel Mac Pro 5? Yeah, I think I'd have to do that to compare. If you get the 28-core Xeon, what does that cost? It's a lot. <laughs> I think it's like a $6,000 upgrade. <laughs> so this is one of those times where I feel confident, which means I'm definitely wrong. I really think it's, if they chart, well, see, here's the thing. I was going to say it's not going to be expensive. Then I was like, well, Apple loves their margins. So maybe it will be expensive just because it can be, not because it has to be. But we'll never know one way or the other. So I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they put, the 2C die as like the base configuration and only a little bit more money as the 4C die. I think it'll be less expensive than any of us expect. And you can you can yell at me when I'm wrong about this, but that's my guess. It should be, because here's the thing. Like when you when you go, I just went to the configurator, when you go and you spec, you, you say, I you know, it comes with an eight-core uh Xeon, right? And it's like, okay, what if I want to upgrade? Again, this is not how much it costs for the CPU, this is how much more it costs, because they take away <laughs> The, the default CPU, and in its place, they give you the better one. And Apple charges seven thousand additional dollars to swap out. <laughs> oh my god! To swap out the eight core for the twenty eight core. Right now, I can guarantee you that nothing, no way that Apple makes the Jade Four C will cost Apple anywhere in the neighborhood of seven thousand dollars. These chips are, relatively speaking, like the you know the ARM chips, the Apple's ARM chips, so much cheaper for Apple. <laughs> than getting something from Intel, it's not even funny. Like, not not even just like half the. I mean, have you ever see like the the like the parts breakdown of like how much does it cost for the stuff on the iPhone? The screen is usually the most expensive component, not the system on the chip, right? The system on a the chip, they estimate it like I forget, it's like fifteen dollars or thirty dollars. Like it's, and that's the iPhone chip that was like faster than all of our Macs for a long time, or my Mac anyway. <laughs> um, so, how much does the Jade Four C actually cost Apple to make? I'm going to say it's in the hundreds of dollars. 
right? Which is not nothing uh, compared to like a $15 chip, but it's not $7,000. So in theory, Apple, that's why I keep thinking Apple could make the Mac Pro cheaper than it is now by passing along some of the savings to us. I don't think they will pass on many of the savings, <laughs> but I think that, you know, I think they will be able to undercut. So the 28 core Xeon, if you just if you just take the Mac Pro and the only change you make to the configurator is you click on 28 core Xeon, that's $13,000. Marco said he doesn't think any, you'll be able to get a Jade 4C under, what did you say, 12? I said 12, although now, see, I'm, I'm rethinking that. I think that might be too low because the $13,000 base price of the current Mac Pro with its best CPU is still with its worst GPU. Mm-hmm. Now, if you bump up the GPU to you know maybe the second highest option, then it becomes eighteen thousand dollars, because these are these are now bound together. I mean, the thing is, Apple Apple is reaping the savings on the GPU as well because they don't have to buy one from AMD. It's part of their thing. So I'm going to go up to fifteen thousand for my estimate, just for the record. I I think it's conceivable that you could get a Jade Four C for ten thousand dollars. Conceivable. Uh, I think twelve is closer to what the reality will be. See, what I keep wrestling with is. There, I could see Apple deciding, you know what, we're just going to absolutely shame Intel and PCs and say that for a not egregious amount of money, say, I don't know, seven grand or eight grand or something like that, look at the performance you can get. And that's because we're so freaking awesome at what we do. And, and so I could totally see them going that route. But Apple really likes money, like a lot. And so because of that, I'm convincing myself that's not what they would do because as much as they like to flex, they really like money. And so I think 10-ish is where I'm going to go. You guys are probably right, but I, I will wager 10-ish is is how much it will cost to get a Mac Pro with a 4C die. I mean, I guess I think 10 is plausible. I think 12 is more likely. Uh, I'll be... I, this is starting getting back to my base Mac Pro discussion. I think Apple will try to undercut the Intel uh, Mac Pro on cost. I think they will say, here's the new Mac Pro, and shocker of shockers, in general, the prices, if you try to compare them to the previous one, have gone down a little bit because the Apple's costs are going to go way down, especially if they don't have a discrete GPU. That means they don't have to buy a ridiculously overpriced Xeon from Intel, and they don't have to buy a graphics card from AMD and pay their margins. So that's huge savings that... I think they can't help but pass some of onto, onto us, right? Especially if they also make the case smaller. You know, if it's a half size thing or whatever, they have to cut out fewer of those little golf ball holes. Like, <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a cheaper machine. And this is, I think, what will happen in the chat room. Is talking about this. Apple's margins will go up on this Mac at the same time that I think the price can go down. That's how much headroom there is. That's that's the magic of ARM. Is that the cost to Apple to build these computers is so much lower than it was when they were paying big, especially on the high end, because the higher end you get, the bigger the margins are. The margins on the, the you know twenty eight core Xeon are way higher than they are on the the Intel chip that was in the MacBook Air, right? And Apple passes them on to us, passes passes those costs on to us, and then some. Yeah, and and you know, and once you factor in like, you know. When Intel is making a, a chip, that that's a very different ballgame. And you know, when they're making a giant Xeon, you know, that sells to a certain market. But like Apple can amortize a lot of that R and D stuff across everything they make, including the iPhone, because the iPhone CPUs are the same high performance and low performance cores, much of the same stuff in the chip. Like much of that R and D cost is shared across their entire product line, and so. I feel like they could, you know, obviously there's always going to be the inherent high costs of manufacturing large chips because those are always going to have lower yields and cost more money to make just at the silicon level. But like the R&D costs and everything are going to be 
much lower for Apple, I think, compared to somebody like Intel, because they're just able to spread it across the entire smartphone market in addition to their entire PC business. Yeah, and Apple is building exactly what they need, not whatever stuff Intel wants to put in them for the server market, because Intel is not really building Xeons for Apple. They're building Xeons for, you know, the enterprise server market or whatever, and Apple just, Apple has to just take what they have. Like, well, here you go. You want a high-end chip with a lot of cores. This is what we have to offer, and Apple probably looks at it and says, bunch of that stuff we don't need a bunch of that stuff we wish it was slightly different they can make exactly what they want here and they you know speaking of spending the cost around they've already made the m1 uh and so in those are the same cores probably in there and you know like the 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 big amount of work that went in was like the big hit was the m1 and they're getting some of that back by using it in the ipad so they don't have to even do that work again and it's all based on you know iphone chips in the end too so there's a lot of cost savings this is you know in general apple's tech stack is doing pretty well in terms of uh not wasting effort we've talked before in the past that how you know it's easy to forget that apple uses essentially a single core operating system from their watches to their giant mac pros and everything in between uh and you know that's that's the software version not the hardware version of that is totally true now that they're off of intel they do some very difficult core design work once and they that pays dividends for years and years so yeah, we'll see how much of that savings get passed on to us, but I really hope it's some, especially at the high end. Yeah, see, my concern is, like, because they have, because according to this rumor, like, it's most likely that they have combined the number of CPU cores and the number of GPU cores together is, like, into, like, two presets or four presets, that in or- if you want a high amount of GPU power or a high amount of CPU power, you might have to take both and take the costs of both. So I think we're going to have fewer options than ever on this new crop of machines that that use the the jade series of chips including you know even even down to the macbook pro but you know like i think we're gonna have very few options and that's not a great thing for cost management (laughs) uh, or future upgradability but that's this whole separate thing all right can we move on from the mac pro Uh, i know that's (laughs) i know that's a pipe dream with you too but (laughs) let's try uh let's talk about something else i really don't care about hey how many fans does the imac have this is one of the revelations from the iFixit teardown. Apparently, the base model iMac, the new, you know, uh, candy-colored iMac, the base model one has only one fan. But the more powerful ones have two. Yep. Uh, and, you know, they were surmising, like, oh, what, is, what does this mean? Is Because the only difference is one GPU core, and this is actual binning, right? Uh, but the other thing is the high-end one has more I.O., and maybe those I.O. chips cause more heat. Like, I don't think there's a lot of heat going on in there anyway. You know, this they have two fans may even be overkill. One fan is probably plenty. These are not noisy machines. I don't think it's a big deal, but it is interesting to me that Apple made that difference. Why not just have two fans in both of them? Um, are they really trying to make them as quiet as possible? And, I, you know, the combination of what maybe whatever extra chips they had to have in there for the uh, extra USB-C ports and the one fewer GPU core put it th- below the threshold in the low-end one. And so the low-end one, I mean, might be quieter, might be noisier if that fan has to go on more and go up to a higher rpm but it's a strange difference that you know it's kind of uh, you would think for uniformity purposes they you know they would differentiate the machines maybe just not putting the ports in and then in in the end they were the same thing under the covers but that's a pretty big difference um and no one has mentioned that who's gotten review units i don't know if everyone got the high end ones or everyone got the low end ones mostly because in general you can't hear these things anyway so it's mostly academic but i thought it was interesting i was kind of curious why they didn't try a, a more passive design with the iMac because, like, if you look at how the uh, M1 MacBook Air is is physically designed, like how how it is fanless, it basically uses the like the air around 
the chip he- the chip's heatsink as kind of like a, a thermal buffer because for, for like various like ergonomic safety reasons, laptops can't be above a certain external temperature. So they they didn't just like bond the heatsink to the exterior casing and transmit all the heat to the casing. They kind of like use the air inside as like a thermal cushion slash insulator uh, slash thermal mass, whatever it is. Um, so the heat sink is not directly touching the outside of the case. So it's the, the performance of the MacBook Air is limited by basically like how much heat they can dissipate with a very small heat sink, really, in a pretty small enclosed space. The iMac is a much bigger space. And I know they don't have a ton of room in that thickness behind the display, but I'm surprised they didn't attempt a totally fanless iMac as well and basically use part of that massive display area, which is mostly an empty cavity, I think mostly for speaker uh, reverberation or whatever, um, to have just a giant heat sink with a giant air pocket and have that be totally fanless for a much longer time than the, than the MacBook Air can do it. I mean, well, the, the iMac is thin, and also that giant screen does produce its own heat. So it's not like the only uh, thing in there producing heat is the system on chips. Like, it's just so thin. Is it thinner than the MacBook Air? It might be. If you include the feet, probably. It's tied in there, and that screen has got to be producing a lot of heat. And I think a lot of the stuff behind the screen might also be for dissipating heat from the monitor. But I think if they made the right call, like you know, especially if it's super duper quiet, uh, give the desktop some fans. You don't want it thermal throttling. It should be one of the benefits to having it's plugged in all the time. Is you don't have to deal with any thermal throttling. And you know, I think about, you think about the iPad with the M1. Like, there's no air gaps in there for that thing to be a thermal buffer. Uh, is the iPad clocked lower? Same thing with the iPad. It's not like they're gonna you know, heat weld that uh, system on a chip to the case either because you don't want your iPad to be hot in your hands either. So that's true. You know, I mean, bottom line is the M1 just doesn't produce a lot of heat. So the, you have a lot of options and it's generally quiet and kind of cool. So speaking of the MacBook Air, let's talk about the ski feet. Uh, Alex Elkins writes, the MacBook Air ski grips could also be so that the grips actually work when the laptop is on your lap. With grips at the corners, they don't really do much when the laptop is sitting on top of your lap. I mean, I guess it depends how far apart your legs are. The rumored picture showed the little, you know, rubber skis on the bottom at the sort of at the far edges of the laptop. So if your knees are together, those rubber strips might be still floating in the air. But it's a theory. Lord Matthew also writes that the ski feet lines under the new MacBook Air are probably so it's super grippy on the table to help MagSafe function correctly. Bigger contact patch for uh, for higher G's. Uh, I mean, <laughs> again uh plausible but i mean like it could just be a style thing as people have pointed out like if if you look under the horrendously expensive pro stand it also has two rubber strips like that um the imac i think also the new imacs also have two strips it might just be a style thing i'm i'm trying to think of like a functional reason why you know why having two strips is better than having like a u-shape or you know i don't know on a laptop i think it's going to be weird but we'll see if that rumor is even true we are sponsored this week by memberful you can monetize your passion with membership memberful allows you to build a sustainable recurring revenue by selling memberships to your audience it's used by the biggest creators on the web because they offer everything you need to run a membership program including custom branding gift subscriptions apple pay free trials private podcasts and tons more things like analytics member management everything you might need to run membership programs memberful brings this to you incredibly easily so you don't have to build it all yourself 
yourself. You don't have to hire programmers and everything else. Memberful does this all, and it seamlessly integrates with the tools you already use. With Memberful, you retain full control and ownership of your audience, your brand, and your membership. Your brand stays front and center. Some memberful kind of fades into the background. So like they're not beating everyone over the head with their branding. It's all about you and your branding because you're selling this to your audience. They have a world-class support team if you ever need it. Uh, They will help simplify your memberships and grow your revenue because memberful is passionate about your success. So they always give you access to real humans to help. You can get started for free with no credit card required at memberful.com today. Once again, get started for free with your membership program at memberful.com. Thank you so much to Memberful for sponsoring our show. So we have some more news with regard to Apple's lossless audio in Apple Music. Uh, does somebody like Marco want to tell me about this? Because I really don't care. Uh, I didn't see this follow-up. Hold on. Tell <laughs> <laughs> me to take this, boys. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, please. Uh, so there was an Apple support article put out uh, explaining some of the nuances of lossless stuff, right? Um, so this is a, a bunch of info is in there, but we'll pull out a few highlights. Uh, one is regarding the Lightning 3.5 millimeter cable for AirPods Max. In other words, when you connect a wire to your AirPods Max, the support document says... The Lightning 3.5-millimeter audio cable was designed to allow AirPod Max to connect to analog sources for listening to movies and music. AirPods Max can be connected to devices playing lossless and high-res lossless recordings with exceptional audio quality. However, given the analog-to-digital conversion in the cable, the playback will not be completely lossless. So the in-the-cable part is the thing I think either I didn't know or had forgotten about. Is there a DAC in that cable? Is that what it's doing? So it's it's there so you can listen to analog audio sources, but apparently it's taking the analog audio and converting it to digital for I don't I don't understand this. Marco, can you try to explain what the hell's going on? Sure. My best guess is that the the cable itself does I'm not sure if if inside the cable actually has a DAC, which would be at the lightning end. Mm-hmm. They do fit. That's how that's how the little lightning to USB or lightning to headphone adapters work. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. So like you could f- put a really tiny little crappy DAC in there and it would be fine. Um, but the main reason it has to become digital in the first place, you know, on the way from analog source to your analog ears is most likely because the entire signal path inside the AirPods Max is digital to do things like the noise processing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's probably why it has to then resample any analog input as digital and just do a very you know low latency conversion uh, and processing of that. Um, so that's that's probably what they're doing. And and that is you know common in the industry to do stuff like that. You know in certain areas, um, you know even most microphone interfaces these days, mo- most of the good ones have like digital processing, which is actually one of the reasons why I still prefer. My old sound device is USB Pre 2, which as far as I can tell is like all analog processing stream uh, compared to the new sound devices Mix Pre series, which I think does digital processing because I sound very slightly different and worse in my own ears on a Mix Pre than I do on a USB Pre 2. And I think what I'm detecting is a little tiny bit of latency with the digital signal path. Anyway, so making that very low latency is hard and I don't know quite how low it can reasonably get and still do any level of processing um but anyway that's probably what they're doing in these headphones for all that um so what they're basically saying is it's not going to be lossless there will be some loss of quality because 
on the way from your analog source through the analog cable into the headphones, it's being converted back to digital one more time before it's processed and then converted back to analog for your ears. Yeah, and basically, this is just a, their, this is their technical explanation of what we said in the last show, which is you think you're going to lose a key connect a cable, and you're not. In this case, with the AirPods Max, right? So that's that's their explanation, and it's a little bit confusing because they don't go into too much technical detail. detail but what you said, Marco, uh, sounds plausible. Uh, they also say in the document that Apple's Lightning, the 3.5 millimeter adapter uh, that you use to connect wired headphones, only supports up to 24 bit to 48 kilohertz. Uh, and if you need something higher, you need uh, a dedicated uh, DAC for that. Um, and we knew that, like we discussed last show, that it seems like that all of the DACs that are built into the stuff that Apple has, including the tiny cruddy one that's inside this little adapter, don't support uh, 192 kilohertz, right? So if you want that, you got to use something else. Yeah, and a few other points to, to add to this. Uh, number one, people tend to think that the quality of the DACs matters a lot between like whether it was the built-in headphone port on older devices or whether it's like the little stupid little headphone dongle that we were just talking about. And I think when people can detect differences in quality in like, you know, the the new lightning to 3.5 millimeter adapter versus old jacks, I think they're actually detecting a difference in amp power because the, the little tiny little amp that would be in that little adapter is going to probably be weaker than whatever amp was built into the phone before. And where that manifests itself in, in, in like noticeable way is you're probably not going to hear like noise differences, but you will probably hear like if that little amp doesn't have enough power to like hit a strong bass note or something that that's like a big power spike when you're amplifying something. And usually like depending on what kind of headphones you're plugging that into, if you're plugging into like larger, nicer, maybe headphones that are not entirely meant for portable use and maybe meant for like studio use or, or high end listening, like with powerful amps, you would notice like, Oh, this, this sounds kind of muddy at the low end because it's not getting enough power to actually deliver that big thump for the bass note. Um, a couple other things to mention here before we move on. Um, the reason why Bluetooth headphones don't support these lossless codecs, I didn't realize that the Bluetooth data transfer speeds were not as high as I thought they were, especially if you want to stick to Bluetooth low energy, which I would imagine Apple probably does whenever possible for battery life reasons. Um, they actually don't have the bandwidth to transmit a lossless stream above like basic cd quality basically even i think even cd quality would be pushing it um so yeah bluetooth does not have a ton of data transfer bandwidth if you're keeping it within a low power envelope um so that's that's possibly one more reason why airpods don't support like the higher the higher range of things uh, in addition to them just probably not even having built-in DACs that go higher than 2448 um, but but at least you know with lossless in particular they probably can't they, they probably can't stream lossless just for bandwidth reasons alone um, and we'll see how Apple, you know, works on that in the future. Like Apple can compress losslessly, but lossless compression, as I mentioned last week, tends to max out at around 50% efficiency. And you can't guarantee that it will hit that efficiency. Like there will be bursts in certain complex passages where it won't hit that efficiency. And so you have to accommodate for the full bandwidth of the signal, like the full uncompressed bandwidth. You have to accommodate for that when you're figuring like whether something has enough bandwidth or not to, to transfer. So there's that to deal with. And then finally, uh, I we actually didn't really spend much time last week talking about the difference between lossless and lossy coding. I spent a lot of time and we debated a lot about high bit rate or high high sample rate and high bit depth so like you know basically higher than cd quality uh sampling of audio 
but we didn't really talk at all about like compressed formats, loss, lossy compressed formats like MP3 and AAC versus lossless formats like FLAC and ALAC and, and just uncompressed. And I did want to touch on that briefly this week, but I don't have that much to say about it because this has been talked to death for so long <laughs> for you know, the last like 30 years. <laughs> um, we all have heard bad mp3s you know the, like the 128k mp3s that we all pirated from napster in the late 90s like yeah we we heard bad mp3s like my first mp3 was bullet with butterfly wings it was 128k and it sounded like garbage oh nice i, I couldn't even play it at full fidelity because i still had a 486 based pc at the time and so i had to only play it at half quality because the 486 was not fast enough to play an mp3 in real time at full quality <laughs> <laughs> but anyway God, that's sad times <laughs> yes <laughs> and it's it's all right my my 400 megabyte hard drive couldn't hold many of them anyway i only had like four or five songs before i had to fill it up uh anyway <laughs> so um the point is mp3 and especially the more modern formats like aac and especially if you go into like the, the new stuff like opus these compression algorithms are so good almost no one can hear a difference between compressed and or between lossy and lossless in the like if you take the exact same input and compress it well at reasonable bit rates like 256k almost no one can hear it the only people who can hear the difference typically are people who are trained specifically in like identifying a s- exact certain type of situation in the audio that that compression codec is not super good at encoding and you can you can kind of you know picture like the the problem with the hbo static logo in video where like you can you can test how bad a video codec is by playing the hbo static intro like from you know an old hbo show and you see like it just macro blocks up like crazy and it looks terrible there are audio equivalents of that that if you're a super compression nerd you can do some research and you can train yourself to figure out like okay this kind of pattern in the sound the compression algorithms are not good at reproducing this Um, especially if it's like you know below certain dynamics or whatever and so people have trained themselves to try to hear those differences. Even those people have trouble doing it reliably when the input is well encoded and encoded at a high enough bit rate. And, and even then, it's like you would have to be paying such close attention and be and know exactly what you're listening for, like exactly the, the flaw you're listening for to be able to, to detect that difference. I'm not going to say that nobody can hear the difference. I will say almost nobody can hear the difference, and the people who can can't do it a lot of the time. <laughs> so uh, the the difference between a lossy codec and a, and a lossless codec is yet one more reason why lossless generally is not worth it for almost anybody. As we mentioned last week, you know the files get way bigger and and it's less practical in a lot of different ways. And but like the difference, I think the difference is sold to people as a way to have them upgrade to higher-end plans and buy higher-end gear and everything else. In practice, I'm telling you, as a self-professed audiophile, it's it's not something I can hear. I, I've tried. I've tried teaching myself how to do it. I can't hear it. Granted, I'm almost 40. Maybe it's just my ears, but I couldn't hear it when I was 20 either. <laughs> and so may, I, maybe I'm just, I'm too much of a plebe to, to hear that, I guess. But I can't hear the difference. And in an actual, like, blind or, or you know abx style testing most people can't hear the difference almost nobody can hear the difference so enjoy your lossy format uh if if you want to save all your disk space because that's you know that, that's what we all do for for good reason and if you really have if you really think you can hear that difference and you can really spare a massive amount of disk space and bandwidth and everything else 
fine, enjoy your lossy file or enjoy your lossless file. You know, no one's going to stop you, but you know, most people are not going to need that. Well, one thing I'll add to that is, uh, and a bunch of people uh, wanted us to mention this in, in case people listening don't know. Uh, how do, how is this possible? How is it that a lossy compressed file that it's encoded well, a two fifty six kilobit AAC, well encoded, is indistinguishable to most people's ears from a much much bigger uh, lossless file? Right? How you know how does that even work? Um, it's exactly the same way that image compression algorithms work, which people may be more familiar with because we probably all see like JPEGs on the web all the time. Uh, the way these algorithms work is they throw away information that our brains don't consider important. Uh, so for images, you know, boy, our visual system is a mess. You think it works just like a camera where it just gathers all the RGB values of all the pixels. No, it's not how our visual system works at all. Our visual system is massively broken. <laughs> see, every, see every optical illusion you've ever seen. But anyway, there are quirks to our visual system that let us throw away huge amounts of information from images. And our eyes say, I don't see anything missing. Looks fine to me. That's why if you get a JPEG and you, you know, crank up the quality of a JPEG to a reasonable level, it looks almost identical to the original ping image, despite being like one eighteenth the size. Well, audio is the same way. There are certain things in audio that our brains don't consider important and don't really detect. And if you throw out that information, it makes the file smaller. But then when we listen, the reason we can't hear a difference is because it threw out stuff that we weren't hearing anyway. It's more complicated than that, but like that's that's what these things are called perceptual, you know, perceptual algorithms. They they use, uh, you know, how we perceive sound or vision or whatever to figure out what they should throw away. Because in the end, if you want to make it smaller, you and and you know, if it's a lossy codec, what lossy means is they're throwing away information. And if you just threw away half the information, it would be terrible. But if you throw away the half that we weren't hearing or seeing anyway. Yeah, it's not that bad, right? And again, we throw away ten percent and so on and so forth, right? Which makes you think, like, you know, if you if you have different perceptions, say you're a different kind of animal, like cats and dogs or bats or whatever, an algorithm that is indistinguishable from lossless to us is not necessarily indistinguishable to another being that has a totally different sensory, you know, set. Like you can imagine, this is a great this is a great sci-fi. This is the most world's most boring sci- sci-fi short story. We land on an alien planet and we look at their images on their web page and they all look like garbage because their version of compression throws away information that their alien eyes don't consider important but it throws away like all the information that our eyes consider important so we can't read their uh we can't read their ad banners on their websites <laughs> anyway go with that that's free just take, that's a if you can turn that into a tweet link uh, sci-fi story and post it to that what is that uh twitter account it's like mini sci-fi fantasy stories they post sci-fi fantasy stories that fit in a single tweet this one will be tough because it's kind of high concept with the whole lossy compression algorithms and alien oh web, but I think someone could make it work. Oh, my gosh. All right. I am happy to report that HomePod and HomePod Mini will support Apple Music lossless. Uh, Apple says that they currently use AAC to ensure excellent audio quality. Support for lossless is coming in a future software update. Yeah, that was nice. Like We were asking that question last time. Like, What is it about the HomePod that would not allow it to do lossless? Because, you know, it's got plenty of bandwidth. They're all on Wi-Fi. Like, it's not like, you know, we could... They're all networked together. If we could somehow tell, I mean, the HomePod is a little computer itself. Just you play the music from Apple Music, and then why can't you get the losses and play it? And the answer seems to be the software teams responsible for the HomePod didn't get that done yet. So, so they get AAC <laughs> until the, until they, you know, because what it does now is it just plays the AAC. But anyway, um, it's nice to see that support coming. It, it probably doesn't really make a difference if you're less, listening on the HomePod Mini. Uh, I think I feel like uh, to Marco's point last show, your speaker is your problem there, not really the the lossiness of the music you're playing, but you know whatever. 
No, I mean, even on the full-blown, big, big discontinued HomePod, even in a wonderful stereo pair, first of all, it's doing so much processing to that audio that <laughs> there's no there's no real benefit in feeding it, you know, something like super pure, like pure signal, uncompressed 24, 182, because it's, you know, it's going to do the same thing that the headphones are doing. It's going to like, you know, sample it as digital and, and process it in a certain pipeline and everything. But that's another point we should point out though, before we move on from that is one of the other pieces of feedback we got, um, which is not really relevant to our discussion, but now it suddenly is because you're talking about reprocessing audio. Uh, one of the contexts where high bit rate, you know, high, you know, 24 bit, no one 92 kilohertz uh, audio files where that is actually useful is in the audio production pipeline. Not the finished product, but in the audio production pipeline, because if you're running it through a series of steps and grinding it up, you really want to have a little bit of excess quality because every time you do some processing, you shave off some edges or whatever. So um, it's not as if we're saying these formats are pointless. We're, we were talking about for end consumers, like when you download a song, this is the final product that you're going to listen to. At that point, it's pointless for you to get 24 192 kilohertz, right? But for processing, maybe not. So to your point, Marco, about, well, the HomePod's going to chop up that audio anyway, I don't. I still don't think this is true, given the quality of the speakers that are in the HomePod. But theoretically, if you fed it uh, a higher fidelity file and it chopped it up through its machinery, maybe you know it would it would come out slightly better if it was a little bit of excess quality that you couldn't hear on the way in. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you made the distinction because yeah, we did hear from a couple of people who were like, you know, I work in a recording studio and we record at you know 24 bit. It's like, well, yes, you should record at 24 bit. I'm recording this podcast right now at 24-bit lossless because I'm going to do stuff with the files. That's very We don't deliver it that way. It's, it is funny. I actually, as a joke, I wanted to deliver last week's episode as lossless as an option, but the the 24-bit, 192 kilohertz stereo lossless file was four gigs, and I didn't think it was worth putting that up anywhere for nobody to be able to download it, and if anybody did, it would cost a fortune. <laughs> But yeah, that was a fun joke. Um, anyway, yeah, so th- there is like there is definitely reason for these formats to exist, it, but it's not in like delivering them to consumers after they've already been mastered and mixed and everything. At that point, yeah, there's there's not much point. Um, I will say on the on the HomePod front, we got this. I don't think we ever talked about this on the show yet. There, the HomePod, the full size HomePod, and the new, with the new Apple TV now supports this eARC thing. Was this on our list anywhere? No, I don't think it was. So this this is kind of amazing. So HDMI ARC uh, is, I think, audio return channel is what it's called, right? Yeah. eARC is not new, is it? Is it like? Well, I think eARC is like ARC two or something. Who knows? It doesn't yeah, matter. But, but it's not. But it's not new. It's new. It's new to the uh, the Apple TV. Right. So th- there is a protocol that TVs can use to send audio that to send whatever audio the TV is playing back down an HDMI cable to a receiver or something. Uh, you know, some, something to to play audio. Apparently the Apple T- the new Apple TV, I think it's the hardware that requires it. I don't think I don't think it's just a software change. I think you need the new Apple TV to do it. But if you have the new Apple TV and you know one or two original big discontinued home pods, it now supports the thing where the TV can through eARC connected to the Apple TV can play any TV audio, including stuff that is not playing from the Apple TV, like a game console or something. It can play any TV audio through those home pods as your tv speakers now there's a massive disclaimer here we don't know how well this works yet we don't know how much latency it might introduce which could be bad for things like games uh but i do think a this is a a great feature 
B, I think this is the most ridiculous, convoluted way Apple could have possibly added a line into a product, <laughs> and that's funny. And C, why is it only on the old HomePods that aren't being sold anymore? Like, there, something happened to the HomePod product line. Like, what? I don't know what happened here. I, I hope, I, I assume that the reason the big HomePod was discontinued, while it's seemingly still getting new features <laughs> that the small one doesn't have, I assume this is, you know, possibly COVID-induced or COVID-induced supply chain disruption combined with poor sales of that model while they hopefully are preparing some kind of new big HomePod, but it just isn't ready yet. Like, that's, that's what I'm hoping is going on here because... I mean, the HomePod Mini is a fine product. I, I, I have a bunch around the house now. I, I like them. But the big HomePod sounds so much better. It's such a nicer experience, like, listening to stuff on the big HomePod. I hope that that, that line is not done yet, as we said before. And I, I, I and what we're seeing now from, like, how the big one keeps getting new features mysteriously, especially when the small one doesn't have them or gets them, like, much later, I, I think that supports that theory that, Apple's probably not done making new HomePod models yet. They probably just got some kind of, you know, disruption or ended the big one early because it was selling so poorly or whatever. But hopefully, hopefully, there will be more large HomePods in the future. I mean, the simple explanation is who the heck wants to listen to their TV over their HomePod mini? <laughs> like, you well, know, right. <laughs> it's, not, it's, the wor- it's probably worse than the speakers that are built into your TV. So don't do that. All right, then final piece of follow-up, I promise. <laughs> we had uh, an email from David Steer, and, and maybe the two of you already understood this, but I just could not wrap my mind around what people were saying with regard to this, and this was the first time it really clicked for me. So the question that David was answering was, why is it that the original AirPods, the non-pro AirPods, support spatial audio but don't support it in the context of video or whatever it's called when it's with video. Uh, you know, so you can't do the thing where if you twist your head while watching a show on your iPad, it'll, it'll change the soundscape. But you can use spatial audio with Apple Music when that's a thing. And David writes, the reason first-generation AirPods will work with spatial audio is because it won't be proximity-based for music. It kind of makes sense for video, where you have a fixed position in relation to the screen. However, with music, the listener's likely to be moving around, so it would be extremely disconcerting to have the sound continue to emanate from a single point in space. So what David's saying is, if you think about it, when you're watching a video, there's a clear origin of the, well, there's a clear theoretical origin of the sound, which is the iPad. But if you're just listening to music, there's no real origin of the sound. And so you don't have to worry about mutating and and changing that sound as you move your head necessarily because there's no like spot that it's supposed to be coming from. And again, maybe the two of you are way ahead of me on this, but it just did not click in my mind until I read David's comment. So I wanted to share. Yeah, that's why we were talking about the lack of gyroscope last time to tell orientation versus just accelerometers and all that good stuff. The uh, only thing I add here is that uh, a lot of people wanted us to tie this in in case this wasn't clear. The spatial audio stuff um, obviously ties into the AR VR stuff, right? So many things that Apple does tie into the AR VR stuff. In fact, we talked a lot about this when spatial audio was first introduced and when the uh, AirPods Pro came out with their transparency mode and how that was kind of audio AR. Uh, yeah, obviously. If and when Apple ever fields an AR VR product, this technology will surely be heavily featured because it is essential for lots of cool stuff to work when in when you're wearing AR VR glasses and or goggles and or whatever. 
We are sponsored this week by Linode, my favorite place to run servers. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing an entire enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux Virtual Machines to develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. I have used so many web hosts in my career so far, and I've been with Linode the longest, since way before they were a sponsor. I chose them on my own. I did my own research, I used them myself, and I've stuck with them for almost a decade now because they are, frankly, the best web host I've ever used, and it's not even close. It's, it's by a pretty wide margin. They just give you incredible capabilities, incredible value, and incredible support if you ever need it. And that's, that's what you're looking for in a web host. Can they power your stuff? Can they support it when you need help? And can you afford it? And that's where Linode is just great all around. All their stuff, they have all sorts of servers and new services and add-on services and different capabilities, different specialties if you need, things like dedicated compute instances or GPU accelerated plans, high memory plans. They have an S3-compatible object storage system now, managed Kubernetes support, and so much more. You can see for yourself by getting started on Linode today with a $100 credit. You can find all those details at linode.com slash ATP or text ATP to 474747. That'll get you instant access to $100 in free credit. So once again, go to linode.com slash ATP, click on that create free account button to get started or text ATP to 474747. Get started on Linode today. Thank you so much to Linode for being an awesome web host and hosting all my servers and for sponsoring our show. All right, let's talk about Apple TV 4K. All three of us have received at least one of them. And by received, I mean pay for it. <laughs> we've all got one. We've got new remotes. Uh, I don't know where we want to start on this other than uh, I, this delightful tweet from Matt Craig. And the tweet reads, the box leaves little doubt what the selling point is this time around. And there's a picture of the previous Apple TV 4K and a picture of the, uh, I'm sorry, the box, the uh, previous Apple TV 4K, and a picture of the box of the new Apple TV 4K. And the difference between the two, other than a, a little bit of size difference, is that if you look at the previous Apple TV 4K, you see this black box, you know, the Apple TV box. If you look at the Apple TV 4K box, you see the a black Apple TV box and the remote is shown right there on the box because we're really excited about it. So uh, I thought that was really delightful and quite funny. It's one of the couple of things that's, a little bit strange and un-Apple-like about the new Apple TV 4K box, like the packaging that it comes in. Look at the, you know, see, again, see this picture on the chapter. Look at the uh, the previous Apple TV 4K. That looks like an Apple box. Dead center is a top view of the Apple TV. It is very sort of elemental and spare. And then look at the new box. It's kind of tight. Like the two elements that the picture of the remote and the box are kind of jammed in there, and it's not symmetrical. It's not a particularly pleasing composition, but it's like it's so important that you understand that this thing does not come with the old remote. <laughs> like, hey, I mean, they. I, I wonder if they even considered like let's just put the remote on the cover. Like, let's not even have because the Apple TV just looks like a black <laughs> void anyway. It's our black rounded rectangle, right? You can barely see the Apple TV, you know, the Apple logo and the word letters T and V on the top of it. How about we just put the remote? Because honestly, that's the only thing people touch. You don't see the little box. It's under your TV somewhere. It's black. It's got one little light on it, right? Uh, so yeah, this is all about the remote. And also, the other thing is, 
I think the box had to be physically bigger because the remote is bigger. So to, once you had the boxes physically bigger, maybe putting the Apple TV in it started to look a little lonely with all that white space. But yeah, it's all about the remote. Yep. All right. So uh, I figure we can just kind of go through what we have here in the show notes and talk about the experience uh, for setup. Again, I was coming from the first, I don't remember the formal name for this, but the first generation of Apple TV that actually let you install apps. And I had never upgraded since, as we talked about quite a bit over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, it's still uh, 1080, it's a uh, it's 100, uh, 100, 100 megabit Ethernet port, et cetera, et cetera. And before I installed my new Apple TV in its place, I remembered that there was a thing and I forget exactly where it is. I'll put it in the show notes, uh, but I won't remember off the top of my head. But there's a thing, and it's something like use a shared home screen. Again, that's not actually what it's called, but something like that. And I thought to myself, you know what? I should verify I have this on. And I did find it. It is buried in the menu system. Again, I'll put the, the steps in the show notes. But basically, I verified it was on on the old Apple TV, and then I disconnected it, and I put the new Apple TV in its place, uh, committing the same sin I did before of using the same power cord <laughs> that was already there, the same sin I committed. Well, that, with the that's a difference because that is literally a power wire. Yes, there is no, you know, I know wall I know. wart brick. So I you're know. actually safe in doing that case. You have power permission. I'm pretty sure I've done that every time I've upgraded an Apple TV. Yeah, because who <laughs> wants to get behind their TV, right? That's exactly. mess back there. Oh well, I did, and we'll get it. We'll get to that later on. But nevertheless, I uh, I plug it in, and you know, I reuse all the same cabling and all that that's there, and. The setup process was pretty darn good. Uh, you are asked to put your phone near the Apple TV in order to get, I guess, iCloud information and stuff like that. Um, and I did that, and it it all came up on the home screen, and it looked like the default home screen for a few seconds, and all of a sudden it started filling itself in as, and downloading apps and so on and so forth. Um and it all worked pretty well. I do have a couple of test flight apps that it didn't even consider installing, which was a bummer. And the only other thing I'd like to briefly complain about is I don't think any non-Apple app persisted login information. So like Plex, I needed to repair. Uh, Netflix, I needed to repair. Uh, we actually pay for SiriusXM for reasons, and I needed to repair that. I needed to repair Spotify, which I actually think that wouldn't work until I turn my pie hole off. It's not repair. You mean re-login. Well, yes and no. Sometimes you have to go to companyname.com slash activate. Sometimes right. they make you enter your username and password. But Correct. the bottom line is it doesn't know who you are. It says, please you know, authenticate with some system that lets us know that you are a person who pays for a thing. Exactly right. And that was kind of annoying because it got is it has gotten way better over the years because among other things, when you're on the same network in, in the same iCloud ID or whatever the, the requirements are as an iPhone, you can actually do that, you know, text entry via your iPhone. And in fact, you know, I use one password everywhere. And so it would prompt me on my phone, hey, do you want to enter your password for Netflix? And then I could use the, you know, one password integration with the iPhone's password manager such that it would automatically load my one my my Netflix password out of one password, password, paste it in the field on my phone and then transmit it over, you know, the air to the Apple TV and, and, and paste it in there. So it wasn't nearly as egregious as it used to be. 
but it's just a bummer, man. Like there should be a better way to do this. And, and I would assume that there's APIs for this. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, nevertheless, that really bummed me out. No, there totally is an API for this. Apple has a solution because Apple identified this as a problem back when they had their first Apple TV with apps. Hey, isn't it super annoying that you have to re-log into HBO and re-log into Hulu and re-log into Netflix? And, you know, I subscribe to a million things. So I get this like the maximum version of this. So they made an <laughs> API for like, hey, if you're making an Apple TV app, Use this thing so people don't have to relog into your thing. And everyone said, yeah, no thanks. Well, there, there, there's a number of, of things in here. Like, So one of them is like the single sign-on thing, which that I don't think that ever went anywhere with like your cable provider. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. That, that's part of it. That's, like, that's only like things that require cable logins to do. And that's not many of the certain, like, you know, that doesn't include things like Netflix or Disney or whatever. But no, I think like the rest of Apple's stuff has a way to do this. It's keychain and key and iCloud keychain, and and the reason why I think that this is not available on Apple TV uh, is that Apple TV has no concept of a local passcode, at least not by default. Um, and and the way iCloud keychain works on other devices is oh, like oh yeah yeah like yeah, they, yeah. Apple Apple tells developers don't store login credentials in iCloud because they don't use like the regular iCloud storage like the key value store or whatever else. Like, don't use that. Yeah, that, that's not that's not the way to do it. Please don't right. do that. <laughs> what they say, but but they have so they have Keychain, which is like the local device, you know, secure storage thing that's encrypted and everything else. And then they have iCloud Keychain. And the way iCloud Keychain works in a secure way at a high level is it's not storing all those credentials and stuff that you that you put in Keychain directly in iCloud. It's storing them encrypted. That's why when you set up a new device with iCloud Keychain, you don't have to just log into your Apple ID. It prompts you to enter the password or passcode from some other device that's in your iCloud Keychain. Because then it uses that encryption key like from that local device to decrypt a new copy of it for itself or something like that. Like, um, But anyway... Apple TV doesn't really have a concept of a local passcode or, you know, local user authentication beyond, like, purchases. So that's probably why they don't do that. Yeah, um, that's a good point. That being said, with the exception of the password stuff, I've replaced a number of Apple TVs over the last, you know, five or ten years. And I do that single uh, home screen sync thing, and it works fantastically for me. With that one exception, it never saves my passwords for things. But with that one exception, it works perfectly. And I really enjoy that feature. And, like... I did the upgrade for mine where, you know, I was basically moving to Apple TVs. I did the I did, did that upgrade in like 10 minutes. It was it was one of the smoothest upgrade experiences I've ever had for any product. With the again with that with that sole exception exception of entering passwords. But even even the password thing was it was improved by by a couple of factors. I mean, number one, I don't think I have as many video watching apps as either of you. Um, but some of them like Disney has this thing, and I think Amazon did the same thing. Uh, Disney had a thing where you, if you have the Disney Plus app installed on your phone, you just open it up on your phone on the same network, and it it says, "Hey, do you want to authenticate this new TV?" You say yes, and that's it. So it's like you know two taps, right? And then uh, Amazon had a thing where I could just use the phone camera to scan a QR code on the TV, and it did a URL scheme trick to authenticate. So like there were there were a few others. I think the only one I actually had to type my password in was Netflix. See, but the problem with the Disney Plus thing, which I agree with you and is nice in in principle, is that for almost all of these apps when they ask me for local network access, it's typically citing a Chromecast as the reason for lo local network access. So I turned them all off because I don't have a Chromecast. So for a minute there, I was like, why is the Disney app not letting me log in? What is the... Oh, uh, <laughs> oh right. I, because it doesn't have local network access, so it can't even see the Apple TV. That's the problem. So other than that, I do agree with you. By the way, while I'm talking real-time follow-up, it is called One Home Screen, and it is in Settings, Users and Accounts, 
then you have to click on your user. So for me, it would say Casey List or whatever. Then in there is one home screen. So it is one, two, three, four screens in, <laughs> into settings, but it is there. And if you keep, I don't know how long it needs to be on on the old Apple TV, I would guess, you know, a few minutes. Um, but yeah, if you leave that on and then it, it will sync everything up when you install the new one. That should totally be the default. I, I remember when I, I think first saw, found that feature. I'm not sure if it is anymore, but I remember when the feature first came out, I'm like, oh, thank God, because I was so tired of setting up the home screens because you know <laughs> I want them to be all the same. It's nice because I think most of us don't have a lot of Apple TV apps, certainly as compared to our iPhone apps, probably. And so it is actually fairly quick to get everything set up. Uh, in terms of you know uh, the local authentication, all the things that you just described, hey, the Disney app does this thing where you can launch it like this. One uses scanned QR code, sometimes to type in a password, sometimes it'll automatically logged in. That's exactly the problem Apple is supposed to be solving, right? And the, the single sign-on thing with cable companies was at the time it came out, a good solution because, uh, you know, most of our TV was through cable stuff then that, you know, and there weren't as many streaming services, right? And I think they've made a couple of efforts at similar things in this to try to get everybody on board. But of course, we know Netflix isn't going to be on board. They won't even be in the TV app. And it's just, it's too fragmented. So this problem persists. Like, this should be something that Apple should continue to work on solving. If they want to just go with iCloud Keychain, which I think is a reasonable solution, they have all the tech to do that. And it's not like these Apple TV boxes are, you know, too cheap for them to include this hey let's just put touch id in the center of the little pad on the remote <laughs> and right and there is your passcode make me enter a four or five or six digit code hell make me enter an alphanumeric passcode right it's not like we don't have the technology to put a passcode on the apple tv just do it i'll use my phone to enter the passcode once instead of entering my password five times and scanning a qr code three times and going to website.com slash activate two times and using a disney plus app one like it's too much they're too it's too different and i granted i'm an extreme case because i subscribe to every video service in the world but it's the, it kind of really undercuts the you know one home screen experience because you think you're done you're like oh everything's back to the way it was and then you sit down i mean this even happened to us even i knew this was going to be the case i just you know it slipped my mind after i had set the thing up because i had to go you know set up some other stuff upstairs or whatever and then we go down to watch a show and it's like oh What's the Netflix password? No one knows what the Netflix password is. You got to get out your phone and then you got to do the thing. And it's just, and then you forget about it again. You go to watch something on Hulu the next day. You're like, oh, I didn't sign into Hulu. It's just this death by a thousand cuts. Um, some of the things that even the Apple controls, they didn't manage to sync, right? The accessibility setting, the one accessibility setting that I use on my Apple TV, which I highly recommend that everybody use. Again, maybe Casey will look up where this is, but somewhere under accessibility, I think under like increased contrast or something under accessibility. There is a setting that lets you change the selection contrast. What that means is, and I'm, I'm sure there are some people who don't think this is an issue, but other people will know exactly what I'm talking about. If you ever look at your Apple TV, you know, the television when your Apple TV is in use, and you can't tell what the hell is supposed to be selected, <laughs> this feature is for you. <laughs> the, what Apple TV, what tvOS does is it makes the selected thing bigger than the non-selected things slightly, and also depending on what remote you have, if you move your finger around on the touchpad or wiggle the remote or whatever, you can see the little tile that is selected slanting and reflecting the light. You know, this used to be a demo they would do. Look at this. It's kind of slanty and reflecty. So yes, you can figure out what is selected, but imagine if the screen visually told you what was selected in an unambiguous way. That's what this accessibility feature does. It draws a white outline around the selected square. Imagine that. So then you can look at the screen and say, I know which one is selected. It's the one with the white outline. 
I think we call that highlighting. And it's been a technology <laughs> used in graphical user interfaces for many, many decades. And it is extremely effective at letting you know what is highlighting. Oh, God, it drives me nuts that they just use that zooming thing. I, I don't know why there's not more complaints about it. I guess everyone else is that much. That it never bothered me. You can always tell the one thing is 7% bigger than the things next Even to it. Even if I can't, if I just think about touching the touchpad, trackpad, whatever it's called. You find, that, you find the thing that wiggles? I feel like I yeah. shouldn't need to wiggle. That's a, that's a sign that this is a bad <laughs> interface. I shouldn't need to <laughs> induce a wiggle to say, I can't tell what's selected, but let me make it, ah, oh, the thing that moved. My eyes moved to the motion. That's the selected one. And the worst is, like, you never know where the selection is, like, when an app launches. You're like, is if I want to go to search, say there's, like, a search at the top of the, the thing, how many rows up do we need to go? Where is the selection now? Am I already in the search bar? You can't tell unless you move the move the selection out of it. Oh, it went dimmer, so I must have already been in the top bar. So I should have just move to the right two spaces to get to the magnifying glass. But the only way I can know that is if I swipe down and realize that the top bar now gets dimmer, which means the previous selection was in the top bar. Selection state in tvOS is a problem. So please go to accessibility and try the setting. I think you'll like it. But anyway, that setting, hey, draw a white outline around the selected things. Didn't carry over from my one home screen thing. It's it's on all of my Apple TVs and has been since the feature was rolled out. Everything else synced, but not that setting. And the second thing that didn't sync was the function of the little button that has like a picture of a TV on oh, it. Oh, yep, 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 yep. I was I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. I was like, I TV hit, app versus home screen. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hit the button. I'm like, where am I? I'm in the TV app. What the hell is this? Now I want that button to go to the home screen. Same. That is my preference on every single Apple TV. It didn't sync. So I had to manually set those two um, functions back to their correct things. So, yeah, setup in general is easy, uh, but I feel like Migration Assistant on the Mac does a better job of actually. I mean, granted, there are advantages here. We already went over the iCloud keychain will bring all of my login information with me. But the Mac doesn't drop settings like this. The Mac doesn't forget, oh, did you allow, uh, you know, right-click on your mouse? It's like, it doesn't forget things like that. It remembers everything down to, like, my keyboard repeat rate, right? So I feel like the few preferences that I set on Apple TV should also be synced. Yep, I can totally understand that. There's a reason why I haven't mentioned anything about Apple about tvOS. Because if we're talking about tvOS, I have many problems that will probably never be solved. <laughs> and some of which seem to be getting worse. But... Uh, this Apple TV hardware and the new remote, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different thing. <laughs> so before we get to the remote, I would just like to say that I was unaware before tonight that John Syracuse's superpower is being able to spot his mouse cursor on his screen the size of a house without <laughs> jiggling his mouse. That is in- absolutely incredible that you can spot it without ever jiggling your mouse. That's like, that's like saying, how can you spot where your pointer finger is? Like, Don't you always know where oh your pointer God. finger is? Oh my it's God. just an extension of my arm. It's like, where's my pointer finger? I have to wiggle it to follow. Oh, there it is at the end of my arm. It's always in the same place. Your, your mouse cursor, you've never jiggled your mouse ever in order to find your cursor. No, I don't even have that feature on the drives. Lots of people use this feature. I don't like it at all. If you, if you need it, more power to you, but I cannot stand this feature. I guess because I moved the mouse too quickly. Uh, Mac OS has an accessibility feature where if you shake the mouse cursor, the, the cursor will suddenly get larger to let you see where it is, um, which is a useful feature if you have trouble finding your tiny, very tiny mouse cursor. But for me, when I turn that feature on, it's like every once in a while, suddenly my cursor gets big for no reason, because I guess I just move my mouse naturally very quickly, and it interprets that, that as, a, as a shake. 
So no, I don't use that feature. Maybe if my vision gets worse, eventually I'll start using it. But for now, I don't use it. You know, here it was, I thought I'd backed you into a corner and I was really, really proud of myself. But no, apparently that legitimately is your superpower. <laughs> oh, tonight I learned. Do, do you use that shaky feature? Either one you're you? darn right I do. I always really? use my damn mouse cursor. Well, yes. your, your vision is really bad, Casey. So you probably need that feature. Well, no, not with contacts. With contacts, my vision is pretty good. If I take them out, I'm basically blind. But with my contacts in, I'm good. Anyway, all right, let's talk about this remote. Um, I should have brought it upstairs with me. I didn't think about that, so I can I can mess with it while I'm uh, talking to you guys. But I really like it. I definitely there. It is not the panacea that I thought it would be, but it is definitely way better. And I am not a prior remote hater. I just thought the prior remote was fine. It was annoying in ways. It was good in ways. It was fine. I'm, this is just my opinion. I know a lot of people disagree, but this new one I really like. And I'm jumping ahead ever so slightly. However. I still am unconvinced. I, I feel like the whole world is trolling me because this whole jog dial click wheel thing does not exist as far as I can tell. Did you see the demo video I put in the notes? I didn't until just a moment ago, and so I wasn't listening to it. And, and Mike uh, Hurley, you know, from Upgraded and Connected, was telling me, no, 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 you got to hold your, your finger on it or something. I don't know. Have you made this work? Because I've never made this work. It didn't even occur to me to try that feature when I was actually using the Apple TV to, you know, watch TV. So the first time I saw the feature in action was in this tweet that someone has a video of them doing it. And the interface is exactly what I thought it would be. If, I, if you just told me, what do you think it's going to look like? Exactly what it looks like. So you I don't know I'm sure the procedure but my guess would have been pause the show put your finger on the jog dial and then that in the timeline in the little scrubby timeline on your tv screen where you have the little dot showing your current position in the timeline suddenly a little circle will appear around that with a dot in it like a jog dial around the part where you are and then as you move your finger on the remote in a circle you will see that circle roll like a wheel as the timeline scrubber thing moves back and forth now, I think part of the problem is, and, and this was, again, discussed uh, privately between Mike and me and a few other people, um, I, I think I had tried this. I, I feel like I tried this in a couple of apps, but Plex was definitely one of them. And I am fairly confident that Plex does not use the out-of-the-box video player. So in that case, I think it's a combination of me not really knowing how to activate the feature and the app I was using didn't support it. But I could swear I tried it in the Apple TV app because I've, I've been re-watching Ted Lasso in, in, you know, in preparation for it coming back next month or two months from now. And, uh, and I swear I tried it in the, TV, in the Apple TV app and I didn't get it to work then. So I'm sure it's at least in part user error, maybe it's entirely user error. But I, I really want to see this and try it. And for the life of me, I just can't get it to work right. Did you remember if you paused first or not? I thought so but again i'm not confident i did and since i had this conversation with mike i haven't had a chance to go down to go down and try it but i will definitely try it and maybe we can do a very brief follow-up next week yeah. i'm not sure how much i'm going i mean i'll, I'll try it you know just now because i'm curious but i'm not i it's not a feature that i was looking for is like i really i really need a way to scrub around timelines more quickly because that's one of the few things that the swipey touchpad was actually okay at right and the thing is, I don't think the jog dial gives, in theory, the jog dial could give you more precision than swiping, but I'm not sure it really does. Because if it did give you that much more precision, it would take forever to jog your way any appreciable distance because you'd be drawing tons and tons of tiny little circles with your thumb, right? Um, so I'll try it and see what it's like. But uh, I think uh, on, with this remote, we talked about it very a lot when it was introduced, but none of us had one in our hands. And I think pretty much everything that I said about my expectations to the remote uh, in that episode is the truth. Like, if you look at a picture of it, you have a good assessment of its strengths and weaknesses versus its predecessor and versus other remotes. 
having it in hand now and having used it on two different TVs, it, it remains too small for my hands. It's bigger than it was. It's thicker than it was. All good, better, but still generally too small. The buttons are still, I don't know how to say it, too slight, too shallow, too uh, too timid. Uh, they're shy. <laughs> These buttons are shy. They're 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 small and elegant. Right, they're they're kind of closely packed. They're not really different sizes or shapes from each other, other than the volume rocker. They're not really great remote buttons. They're not terrible buttons. They're not really. Oh, great. oh, whoa! Slow down. The click feel on these buttons is absolutely delightful, though. Oh, what? Oh, I think it's delightful. It, it's okay. Lots of remotes. Uh, what Casey I think is getting at is if you if you just get a cheap crappy remote, you know the rubbery button feel. That's not a good button feel in general. Like. You want something that feels like you're pressing something, and a really cheap remote will just feel mushy. But you can have what I'm describing as a button that has a positive click where you're sure when you clicked it and you're sure when you didn't, and is also not like one eighteenth of a millimeter off of the surface. Yeah, yeah, Th- that part I agree with. Like, I, I don't personally find it a problem, but I, I don't think it would be bad for them to be raised higher off the surface of the remote and, and separated more widely on a larger remote. Yeah, yeah, like, like it, it is what it looks like. You're not. It's nothing. You're in for surprise here. Um, the, the touchpad in the center of the jog thing, I'm kind of of two minds on that. Now, one thing I did immediately find when going through the preferences is there is a setting in there that if you don't want to use touchpad at all, you can turn it off and then it just becomes a five way up, down, left, right, press the button in the middle, right? And it will just ignore all touch input. And I think that is a great feature to add for people who have motor difficulty dealing with the touch interface, which at various times is me, right? I, and the, you know, again, we talked about this last time. One of the great things about the remote is that the entire top of it is not a touch surface. So you can confidently lift it off the table by its tiny little sides, which still should be bigger. But you can confidently lift it off the table knowing I'm not accidentally doing something to the touchpad because it's so clear that you are gripping the metal edge of the remote and you're not touching that one little touch sensitive area in the middle. Granted, the jog dial is also touch sensitive, but if you brush up against that, I don't think it does anything. It's that center thing that if you have the touch thing on, uh, you know, is the danger zone. But it's very easy to tell that you're not touching that danger zone versus the other remote where half, literally half the remote was a danger zone and you could never tell which half it was because they were looked identical in the dark, right? Um, so that's good about this remote. But I didn't disable the touch surface because I found through years and years of using the stupid diving board, you do eventually get used to swiping because it is faster than going down, 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 right? And suddenly with the danger of me accidentally hitting the touchpad gone, I'm left with only the benefits of, well, when you do want to go you know before i bother to get off the couch and get my phone sometimes i'm actually are enter- trying to enter like my email address with the with the little swipey thing on the little you know alphabet <laughs> number line thing where you're trying to go from a to q to what yep, yep 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 swiping is good for that and even just going around on the home screen just looking around for something swiping is good for that too so i don't know if i'm going to keep the swipe function on but for now i'm still seeing some benefits of having the little swipe here and you would think the area is too small to be useful for swiping but it's not because in general you just you know flick 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 you're not it's not like you're, it's not like a trackpad where you're dragging your fingers around it's more of a gesture pad right so that i think works maybe slightly better than i expected um the one good feature that i didn't anticipate about this remote is the fact that the back button is like more concave i guess i don't know do any, do any of you have the remotes none of us thought to bring it with us nope <laughs> anyway the back button uh feels different than the home button that's right next to us. Imagine that, making buttons feel different. It's the same size, it's the same shape, but it's like its indentation is different than the home button. So when, when it's dark and you've got the remote in your hand, 
which is no longer symmetrical, and you're moving your finger off of the touchpad onto the back button, it's very clear to your finger that you are on the back button because it feels different. I'm pretty sure it's more concave than the others, right? Maybe the other ones are totally flat and this is the only concave one. It doesn't have a big white outline around it like the menu button did. The, this, this difference in feel is merely the top surface of the button feels different and that tiny little thing, it's like like an ice water in hell, as Steve Jobs would say. Ah, imagine that. Different things feeling different on a remote in a tiny way, in the <laughs> smallest possible way. It doesn't, because again, if you're looking at the photos, we never would have picked this up, but it makes such a big difference. That's what you want out of a remote. You want different things to feel different so that you can, you know, that's one of the great things about the TiVo remote. You pick that thing up in your hand and you can feel where the buttons are with just your finger without looking at them and you will be sure that you're on the one that you expect because it's it's like a... You know, I don't know how you describe it. Like it, it's like it's like a map. Everything is a different shape, and there's no ambiguity, right? When you're on that pause button or on the button to the right or the left of it, or you move up to the the five way pad, everything feels different. On this remote, one thing feels different, and that's the back button, and it's a super important button. So I'm glad that they did that. And you know, the five way feels different as well. So that is a, an advantage that I didn't expect. I've seen some complaints about the play, pause, and mute. Oh, that's me. That's yep, being me right in different here. positions. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, it's driving me bananas. So to back up, just to establish context here, on the prior remote, there were there were three buttons kind of below the fold, if you will, and and of those, the upper left was the Siri button, the bottom left was play pause, and then the entire right side was volume up and volume down. Now, in where the Siri button was, which is the button that I never hit is now play pause, which is the button I hit more than any other. In the bottom left, which is where the play pause button used to be, is mute, which is a button that I do want to hit from time to time, but like a tenth as much as play pause. And then the right-hand side is still volume up down. So in effect, they have... They've taken the play pause button, moved it up to a different spot, and then taken a entirely new to the remote button, the mute button, and put it where play pause used to be. So every time I play pause, I hit the friggin' mute button every single time, and it's driving me nuts. And I'm sure I will eventually retrain myself, but it's driving me absolutely batty, and I, I don't understand why they did it that way. I just don't. I mean, I think I understand it a little bit in that it's kind of like on, you know, we talk about our iPhone home screens and people wonder why my apps are the way they are. Some parts of the remote are easier to hit with your thumb than others. And the far lower left bottom, I think, is harder to reach, especially if your thumb is mostly on the five way and then occasionally on the back when you're navigating. I feel like the like to, to the extent that this remote acknowledges a hierarchy of controls, which is just what you're describing, Casey, which things do you use most often, second most often, third most often, to the extent that this remote acknowledges that that hierarchy exists, it expresses that through the positioning of the buttons because they're all the same size, they're all the same shape, and they're all in this one little skinny remote and there's not that many of them. So it doesn't really, you know, you would imagine that if you were designing a good remote, for example, you'd realize that play pause is probably the most important playback control the entire thing five way is probably more important for navigation but in terms of while you're watching tv play pause is probably number one with the bullet right so maybe make that central and huge and feel different nope apple says no 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 but they did (laughs) give it a position that i think is easier to get to than the mute button and yes it's, it's 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 the reverse of the previous arrangement which is messing with all of our muscle memory because the remotes are similar enough they you know if you ignore the five way right it the buttons in the middle it's like three circles down the left side and then a circle and a lozenge it's exactly the same <laughs> right and so we've spent years with that terrible siri remote 
reaching for the middle button of the three buttons that are on the left, or the bottom button of the three buttons on the left, and having that be play pause. And now the bottom button of the three buttons left isn't play pause anymore. And again, they're all the same size, all the same shape. You just have a tiny symbol that you can't read on it because it's dark when you're watching TV, right? So I think our muscle memory will remap, but this just highlights another instance of this remote refusing to do the good thing, which is put an actual hierarchy in the buttons. And by the way, I, I understand why they do this. It looks nice and everything. Game controllers suffer from the same sin. See my long episode of Hypercritical about this, right? In most video game controllers, there's a button that gets hit more often than any other button. And then there's a second most often button, right? There's a primary button. You know, ask anyone who has both a PlayStation and a Switch how much <laughs> how much they can't stand the fact that the primary action button is bottom of the four buttons on the PlayStation, but is the right of the four buttons on the Switch. It really makes navigating menus very difficult if you have try to have muscle memory in both those things. But either way, the correct solution was what the GameCube came up with, which is if there's a button that hits that you hit most commonly, make that one the biggest button. And then the button you hit the second amount, make that the second biggest button. And, and maybe the tertiary button should even be a different shape. Uh, the TiVo remote does that. This remote doesn't. Right now, we're all suffering from bad muscle memory. I think we'll mostly get over it. Um, I mostly just sit here trying uh, to enjoy the one good thing about the remote, which, again, is the concave back button that actually feels a tiny bit different. And I just celebrate that every time I hit back. But play pause... Yeah, well, we'll get used to it, I guess. Well, no, but you say that, but I challenge you on that because for me, I am still going to use the Siri remote on the now upstairs Apple TV because no, you're I not. Would I mean, why, I, why I, would you do that to yourself? Why? why would I spend sixty dollars for this new remote if I don't have to? Oh, it's sixty dollars well spent. Well, because <laughs> this this right here, this is the reason that your muscle memory for play pause is going to be totally broken until you consolidate on one of these remotes. And and that's exactly what I was thinking to myself five minutes ago. Was oh my god, I am going to buy one of these stupid remotes for that stupid Apple TV because <laughs> I, it's going to drive me nuts. It's it, it's like it's like a soft closed toilet seat you, you can't have just one of those in your house <laughs> if you just have one of them you constantly be slamming it yeah right yeah like you got to convert the whole house or none yep uh, you're not wrong no my, my only complaint about this is that i i agree with some of the uh, twitter people who have been complaining about the the button click feel and sound kind of feels and sounds cheap oh hard disagree very hard disagree I think it sounds great. You also like the butterfly keyboard. It, honestly, uh, it kind of feels and sounds like a butterfly keyboard. <laughs> but it doesn't feel rubbery, which is one kind of cheapness for remotes. So for sure, it doesn't feel rubbery. But I but I think the cheapness comes from it is smaller and lighter weight. And it is kind of like you're not going to get a solid ka-chunk from a plastic button of this size and thickness in a remote this size. You're just not going to. Oh, no. Right? But if you look at the Siri remote that, that preceded this, it had the exact same size buttons, and they feel and sound better. They are less clicky, I think, and it depends on if you really want that positive, like you have clicked the button versus you have just pressed down and felt something go down. I feel like the the Siri remotes are more damped. They are, but I think I think that makes them feel a little bit nicer and more luxurious. Like the last thing you want in in like your TV environment is to hear loud clicks from your buttons on your remote, yeah. and it just it doesn't it doesn't feel high quality yeah i I feel like we're getting with the volume control like because you might be adjusting the volume while you're watching 
and you don't want to hear click, 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 click. So I see what you're getting at there. It's just that I never use the volume on this thing anyway, so I don't have that problem. Oh, then you're not even qualified. This is my, I'm using it exactly as Apple says. It's my only remote the vast majority of the time. (laughs) The old one was too. Like a lot of people didn't realize that the old one had the ability to turn your TV off as well. Like well, you just held down the home button for a few seconds, then it would say sleep all devices. And if you, if you wanted to buy into HDMI CC, sure. Yes. Yes. Marco and I are unicorns. Every It works for everybody except you. Nope. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, speaking of that, though, the power button they added to the top of this, like, so there's a power button on this, which is nice. And, but the, you know, I was confused by it because I thought, oh, this is great. Uh, this remote has an IR, uh, you know, emitter on the front of it, I assume, because there's a big black thing up there, right? So I'll just be able to let this thing know what kind of TV I have. And then when I press that power button, it will send the IR signal that my TV needs to turn off. As far as I can tell, it doesn't do that. Apple TV does supposedly understand what kind of TV I have. But it is not doesn't, as far as I've been able to tell, there's no way for me to get the new Apple TV remote to send out an IR signal to turn off my TV. Uh, have you dug around the settings? Because the old one could actually learn an IR remote for volume control and stuff you can so you can what you can do is you can tell the apple tv to learn like any other remote like i use the tivo remote with my apple tv for years right so you can say hey apple tv forget about your old remote this is your new remote learn this right you can do that but when i looked for the thing that said can i tell you apple tv what kind of tv i have so that the power button on the apple tv remote will do stuff Basically, what I found in the documentation was like, don't you worry about that. Apple TV knows what kind of TV you have, and it will support stuff. And it does support things like the volume. Like, the volume buttons work. I just don't use my TV's volume. I use my receiver's volume, right? That's a different remote, right? But I don't think there's any way. Like, it knows what kind of TV I have, and in theory, it knows what kind of IR signal it should emit to turn my television off, but it's just not going to do it. And if you look at the support document, it says, hey, you want Apple TV to turn TV off? Use HDMI CEC. And that's where I say, nope. (laughs) But it's your own fault. You should try it. I mean, maybe in my great. next TV setup, I'll try it again. But I've, my current setup, I have tried HDMI CEC, and it is very bad with my current setup. Well, for, for what it's worth, my TV is turned on and off via the Apple TV, via, via CEC. But I am, like you, controlling the volume of a receiver that is completely and utterly unrelated from the television. And that all works, no problem. It did with my prior Apple TV. It does with this TV. I, I guess I just have a better TV than you is what it boils down to because it actually works with CEC. I mean, you do. Remember, I don't even have a 4K TV. I know. Well, that's right. I forgot. I knew it was plasma. I forgot it wasn't 4K. Uh, don't worry. I'll make you feel a lot better about my TV situation. There's no, there's no 4K plasma, Casey. Yeah, that, well, fair. I just I, I don't keep up with it as much as you. All right. Who wants to talk about calibration, which is something I haven't done yet, but should probably do? Yeah, we talked about this uh, a few times in uh, past episodes. And the main, my main objection being that it doesn't actually calibrate your TV; it calibrates the output of your Apple TV, which has many limits. Calibrates your brain, man. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which has many limitations to it. Um, but a lot of people did a bunch of tests on this. Uh, my my favorite HD, uh, my favorite television techie YouTube channel, HDTV Test. Despite the fact that the host of that uh, channel tries to make a sexual innuendo joke in every single one of his videos and every single time I'm like, I'm begging you, stop doing this. <laughs> stop doing... Anyway, other than that, the TV content is really good. Um, and he did a test of the Apple TV calibration. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see this video. Um, it gets very techy into the details of calibration. He basically says the same things like, hey, there's a bunch of settings in your TV that Apple TV can't change. So if you actually want to calibrate your TV, you actually have to calibrate your TV. But... 
If you're not a professional TV calibrator like the person who runs this channel, and you just want to use this feature to make your TV better, especially if your TV is on some horrendous preset that really mangles the colors, it can get you closer to being calibrated. So I figured I should try this on my TV too, just to see how it works. Maybe it's because my TV is super duper old, as we just established. It is a it is a non 4K plasma television. Uh, this Apple TV calibration uh, feature is extremely confused by my plasma television. <laughs> right, <laughs> so I'm not sure if you if you've ever seen like a slow mo video of what a plasma TV does to put its picture on the screen, especially older plasma TVs. It is not what you expect. It is not as if there's a line scanning from top to bottom. It's not as if there it changes the image on the screen and then waits and changes the image to something else it basically builds the image from a series of colored dots that are put up on the screen sequentially and if you see it in slow motion it looks like nothing but if you see it in full motion it looks like a picture because again see our human (laughs) visual system being messed up um so i tried to use the feature it said oh look at these sparkly things hold your phone one inch from the screen and inside this thing i did that for a surprising amount of time uh, and it would just be like, are you sure you're holding it within an inch? Hold it within an inch. Make sure the top edge of your phone is within the rectangle. I'm like, it is. I'm here. This is an inch. Should I do it farther? Should I do it you know, closer? I tried every possible distance. Sometimes it would start showing, hey, I'm going to show you red. I'm going to show you green. They would say, up. Oh, where's your phone? Did you take your phone away? Put your phone in the rectangle. I spent a long time. It was like Poltergeist <laughs> episode. I spent a long time. My arm was getting tired, holding holding my phone. Yeah, is this the right distance? How far away should I be? Closer? Farther? Try to... Oh, my God. I think it just doesn't know what to make of, like, the cameras in my iPhone. And again, I'm using an iPhone 12 Pro, the latest Apple TV. The only thing that's ancient in this setup is my stupid TV. Eventually, I got it to go through a calibration cycle. What was different about the, you know, five minutes into this, the 90th time I tried this and the other times? I have no idea. But it was super finicky for me. I don't blame the device. I blame my ancient TV. But anyway, after it did everything, it gives you a screen that lets you swipe back and forth from like, I forget what it says, like original or calibrated, you know, basically like A-B test. Like it shows you a, a video of an aerial view, probably like a drone footage of like a beach with water, and it lets you switch back and forth. Here's what you were like before, and here's what we calibrated you to. And kind of like uh, the uh, 256 kilobit AAC and the uh, the losslessly uh, lossless version of the same file, I would switch back and forth. I'm like, is anything changing? <laughs> Did you change anything? Because like in some televisions, like like if you use Dolby Vision, if your television supports Dolby Vision at all or something, it just says, "Oh, we refuse to try to calibrate your TV's probably fine." Which is, a is not true, but B is its its way of saying, "Look, we're not going to be able to make any improvements here because we can't make heads or tails of this." But anyway, my TV, as previously established, is, I think, reasonably well calibrated. And the fact that the Apple TV calibration thing couldn't make... Like, I spent a while going back and forth and staring at certain sections of the image like, does it look a little different there? (laughs) Let me turn the lights off. Is that sand a little bit browner? Oh, it's hard to tell. A, B, A, B, A, B. (laughs) Going back and forth. (laughs) So, um, you know, I guess that means that you know, my television was close enough in the areas that it was trying to calibrate. There was a difference. Eventually, I could tell if you could look at certain structures or certain sections of the wave, because it's just a video loop. And eventually, you've seen the same video loop 100 times. I think it did take a little bit of blue out of my picture. The problem is, is that the right thing to do or not? I don't know what this beach footage is supposed to look like. If it, if it pulled down a little 
tiny imperceptible amount of blue out of the picture? Is that making my picture closer to being accurate or farther from being accurate? I don't know. Either way, it only affects the Apple TV, so it was kind of a moot point. So I just, you know, ignored it and left my television the way it was. But for if you use the Apple TV calibration picture and the, the you know, before and after are radically different, one thing you could choose to do is say, oh, I'll take what Apple TV did because that's probably better, which is probably true. It probably is better than what you're on. But the other thing you could do is take that as a very strong signal that your TV is super screwed up, calibrate your television set somehow, and then redo the Apple TV calibration and see if the difference is smaller. Because if you have a huge difference there, it shows something is messed up. And you don't want to just fix it for the Apple TV. You want to fix it for everything, right? Unless you literally only ever watch stuff through the Apple TV. But even then, please, everyone, consider calibrating your TV. Uh, you can actually pay people to come to the house and do it. I don't know how, who to recommend except for this one guy who has a YouTube channel. He lives in the UK. So unless you live in the UK, you're probably not going to get him to come to your house. But there are options. I always recommend the THX tune-up app, but it is super old by this point, and I'm surprised if it's even still supported or downloadable. There are other options on the you know the Apple TV store, whatever it's called. Most of them are terrible. Uh, that's why I always recommend THX tune-up. You know, it's hard because there's not a lot of great options to recommend. You can you can buy uh, calibration DVDs and Blu-rays and use them to try to calibrate things. You can go to rtings.com and look for a bunch of presets for your specific television, which might be better than nothing, but maybe not. Um, but I guess failing all of that, try the Apple TV calibration feature. Uh, you know, it's probably better than nothing. <laughs> a glowing recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably better than nothing. Did either of you try it on your TVs? Uh, I did not, but I was fighting many other problems, which we'll get to here in a moment. Marco, you didn't try it? No, I don't care. My, my, I'm. I also don't care that much. That's true yeah. Too. Like I, I usually, you know, I, when I get a new TV, which is not a common occurrence, uh, I like do a rough calibration. Like I did it this time. I based based it on like Arting's as like a starting point, and then I did a few minor tweaks for like my own taste. Um, but then I just leave it. Well, at least one of you should try it because I'm. What I'm curious to know is, hey, did it actually work for you? Could you hold your phone up in front of your TV screen and then it said, "Oh, we see your phone. Let me cycle through a bunch of colors." Or did you have to sit there, like I did for five minutes, wondering why it's not doing its thing? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's up to you, Casey. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I may or may not be using Dolby Vision anyway because I do not have an ancient TV. So apparently, uh, there's nothing I can do according to the Apple TV. Well, that's. Right? I mean, that will be a result too. You'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, speaking of speaking of Dolby Vision, yeah, um, another thing that you will see there's a second video from HDTV test is that apparently the so this is the confusing thing because this is not an Apple YouTube channel; it's a television reviewer YouTube channel, right? So according to the person who hosts this channel, the old Apple TV, whatever that means, had a problem with raised blacks in Dolby Vision, which means that you'd go on a screen that's supposed to be black, and instead of it being black, it would be super super dark gray. And that's not good. And this was a problem with the Apple TV device, not something wrong with the television. You'd calibrate the television exactly, but then you'd play a movie through the Apple TV and everything would be a little bit brighter than it was supposed to be, right? And he says, okay, with the new one, that's fixed. The problem is, was that fix done in the new version of tvOS? Or is that a fix done in the new Apple TV 4K hardware? He didn't differentiate. For all we know, this was a software fix and it affects all the Apple TVs and it's fixed everywhere. Or it could be, I can't imagine it could be a hardware thing, but the way he presented it is like, hey, if you get a new Apple TV 4K, you won't have raised blacks and Dolby Vision anymore. I find it hard to believe that that is a feature of the hardware and not the software. So I don't have a conclusive answer to this, but it's good to know that one of the major visual deficits of watching anything in Dolby Vision on the Apple TV in the past 
raised blacks is now fixed somewhere in the new stack, I'm assuming in the software. All right, so let me take you on a journey of my Apple TV upgrade experience, and uh, this is probably going to take just a few minutes. So I plug in my fancy pants new Apple TV 4K, and I have an LG C9, which is a you know a 4K OLED TV that I bought in late 2019, and I. My setup, and you need a little bit of context to understand why I made the decisions I made and and what's going on here. Um, My setup is a little bit weird, (laughs) which is probably the story of my life. Unnecessarily convoluted, maybe? Yes, as always. So uh, Marco will make the image that I am sharing in the chat right now the, um, the chapter art for this chapter. And so this is what's in my wall, or this this is what the the two gang plate. Your handwriting is terrible. You, I know you slaved over this image, and you decided to handwrite the labels, and no one can read them. Oh come! Speckers? On. What's a specker? Oh my god! I hate you too. What's a homie port? Oh, S P E C K E R S. Did I really? <laughs> oh, it is. It's it says it. I just have weird A's. Oh, you, like you're using a program to make this. You didn't draw these lines by hand. Use text. This is a text tool. <laughs> Is, is that circle on the top say oatmeal? Oh, yes. my gosh, you guys. <laughs> O-T-O-F-E-L. That's the bowl of oatmeal right below the outdoor speckers and next to the homie port. It's, it's like an oatmeal cookie. It's round and brown. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know? And also, <laughs> these, these HDMI ports, have you ever seen an HDMI port? Do they have it's an each, approximation. Does each one have a different width and a different angle of the slanted sides? I knew I was going to get so much grief for this. Oh, my God. I knew I was going to get so much grief. Can we please just try to move on to this? I'd like to stop recording sometime Wait, today. do you really have something where the HDMI ports are not all aligned to the same alignment? Like yes. Like one's 90 degrees rotated? This is what it looks like. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't take a picture in part because there's so many cables that, and I don't want to remove them all. That it would take me forever to, to actually take a picture. But I assure you, this is what it looks like on the wall or in the wall, depending on how you want to look at it. Behind my like AV receiver area, so I've got three HD. In case you're not looking, I have three HDMI ports, an optical port, and then oh, four, optical. Mm-hmm. That's what that says. Yep, and then or, you know, SPDIF or whatever it's called. I think I'd prefer oatmeal. <laughs> well, and then four. Oh, and Spitif is only when it's uh, coaxial. That's Toslink. Oh, sorry, Toslink. Okay, there you go. It's the same protocol, but just different media. No, no, no. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so I have Toslink. I have three HDMI ports, and then four like uh, speaker jacks for outdoor speakers. Uh, and and so the reason I have this is that my again, admittedly convoluted setup. I understand it's convoluted. I understand I'm making problems for myself. My setup is. Because my receiver is freaking ancient, it's so ancient that it has zero HDMI ports on it because I don't think HDMI was a thing at the time. And it has two component inputs, which even for the time it was new was not that many. So it's not a terrible receiver, but it should probably be upgraded. So I understand that I'm well aware that I'm making problems for myself by using this old receiver, but it wasn't broken, so I didn't want to fix it. All right, so the way this works is I have optical going from the TV through the wall and then coming out of this port and into the receiver. And so whatever the TV is playing audio-wise is coming back out of the TV through optical. And this is this is actually what eARC is sort of kind of trying to do as well. Uh, it's coming out of the TV via this toss link through the wall, out of the wall, and then into the receiver. So whatever the TV is seeing, the receiver can play. 
Then I have three HDMI ports. I have one for the Apple TV, one for a cable box, and one for the Switch. Because those are the only three devices I ever, ever, ever use. We do have a Blu-ray player, but we used it so infrequently that I actually put it in the attic because we basically never use it. So I don't have a Nintendo, or excuse me, I don't have a PlayStation, I don't have an Xbox. I've only ever really needed three HDMI ports. And so in that sense, everything is fine. All right, so I take my Apple TV, you know, my 1080 Apple TV, I remove it, leaving all the cabling and everything there. And I plug in the Apple TV 4K. And immediately I realize I have a major problem because what I didn't draw in this picture is that I also have, and I'll put a link in the show notes, I forget the official name for it, but it's a like an HDMI audio extractor. And I started using this when I got the app, you know, the, the Apple TV 4, excuse me, the Apple TV 1080, because it no longer had its own optical output, its own Toslink output. And what I do like to do on occasion is I want to have like a concert playing off of Plex, which means I'm playing it on the Apple TV, but I don't necessarily want to have the TV on because maybe the kids are staring at it, or maybe I just don't need to look at the concert. I just want to hear it. And so I I needed a way to get audio only out of the Apple TV and into a second Toslink input into the receiver. So what, what I had was, strictly speaking... Apple TV, a little teeny tiny HDMI cable to this HDMI audio extractor, and then on the other side of the audio extractor, an HDMI cable to the wall, there's an HDMI cable in the wall, and then an HDMI cable coming out of the wall and into the TV. So I immediately realized my audio extractor is too old, and it doesn't support 4K. (sighs) Fine. Okay. That's my own fault. That's my own fault. So I pull that out, and I, I eschew it entirely. So now I'm going from Apple TV to the wall, through the wall, then to the TV. And I try to play stuff, or I'm looking at it, and it just doesn't look right to me. And then I start doing the, like, calibration, and, or not calibration, but, like, what video mode am I on? And I should have taken better notes, but I was, I was in such a hurry to try to figure this out that I didn't, that I didn't take good notes. But I think, I think I was on 1080. And so I'm like, well, that's weird. That doesn't seem right at all. And somewhere in the Apple TV settings, there's a mechanism by which you can say, hold on, redetect the TV and see what the issue is, or see what, see what video modes you support. And eventually it comes back and it says, well, I think all I really got is 4K. No, no, no. Oh, yes, I'm good. Oh, here we are. It's 4K Dolby Vision, and everything seems fine. 4K, 60 hertz Dolby Vision, we're all good. And I go to play some stuff. And, you know, I play some stuff off Apple TV. I play uh, one of the couple of things I have in 4K on Plex, and what I'm finding is even in 1080 content, every like 30 seconds, and this is where the problem comes in, every like 30 seconds, the TV loses all signal. I hear nothing. I see nothing. Waits for two or three seconds. And then everything comes back. So this is happening every 30 seconds to a minute. I'm just periodically losing everything on the TV. I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. What's the problem? Can I guess? Yes, please bad HDMI cable or HDMI cable that can't handle the um, the band, the full bandwidth of the full resolution that you're sending. Your guess is noted. Let me continue telling more of the story. So I eventually think to myself, hmm, the cable inside the wall was put there in the aughts, so like 10 plus years ago. I bet you this ain't right, and it's just not supporting the bandwidth that I need. So I go into the Apple TV settings, and I think, Okay, let me see if I crank it down from 4K Dolby Vision at 60 hertz. The best bang for my buck, the thing I will miss the least, is if I drop it down to 30 hertz. 
So I'm still 4K. I'm still Dolby Vision, but 30 hertz. You're, you're killing me with all these things. You watch a lot of 60 frames per second content on your television, well, do you? here's the thing. I don't, but, but why are you let doing me this? tell you, let me tell you what looks like garbage. What looks like garbage <laughs> is the animations on the Apple TV, like home screen and anything Apple TV related, like just the animations, like zooming in and out and moving around. I, I swear to you, they look like garbage. They look so crappy at 30 hertz. Right, but there is a setting that, I'm, I'm surprised this isn't the default, but maybe important of these settings. The setting that you, that you want is, hey, when I'm on the menus, Apple TV, use 60 hertz because I want 60 frames per second animation. But when I'm watching an actual TV show, use the Agreed. frame rate that the television show or movie was shot in, and please do that. No, that, that, wasn't, that wouldn't solve this problem, though. But it wouldn't solve the problem because even in the home screen, then I would uh, periodically, I would assume, get these blackouts, dropouts. Yeah, whatever. no, you have you have some other problem going on. But I'm saying like the solution is probably not to let's let's pin my TV to 60 sure. frames per second everywhere because that's going to make everything look really bad, except for the except for the home screen. <laughs> so nonetheless, so nonetheless, uh, I eventually come to this conclusion that I can do 4K at 30 hertz with Dolby Vision. Everything's fine. And I thought I had at least gotten a stopgap for now, and I have already ordered through Monoprice a supposedly 8K-capable cable, because I think what I have to do is go back in the wall and string a new, like, 15-foot cable through the wall. So, in other words, Marco, I think your conclusion was, or I, I can tell you, your conclusion is my conclusion, that the cable in the wall was no good. However, I've already solved the problem. What had happened was, unrelated to all of this work, I also, you know, one of the final steps on the screened in porch, which is now pretty much done, was installing outdoor speakers. And for the first time in years, I've had a need to plug stuff in to the four speaker ports that are below one of the HDMI ports and in, in, in the tossling port that's in this diagram. In the process of doing that, I removed the upper left HDMI cable, which just so happens to be the Verizon Fios cable box. In placing that that cable back in the wall, once I was done with the outdoor speakers, I accidentally pushed the HDMI receptacle inside the wall further into the wall so I can't <laughs> plug in the HDMI enough, right? It's a quality craftsmanship <laughs> in this in this box that you've drawn here. Oh, my God. It, it's, it's really frustrating. So now I've got to take everything. I've got to remove the faceplate. I've got to take, uh, it, I think it was, I only had to remove the left-hand you know, gang or whatever it's called, the left-hand box, and pull it out so I can shove the HDMI receptacle back to where it's supposed to be, blah, blah, blah. So then when I was reconnecting what I've diagrammed in this picture is blue and pink or whatever, but they're, they're really not color coded. When I was reconnecting the two HDMI ports for the, or the two HDMI cables for the switch and the Apple TV, because I was in such a rush to finish this, I accidentally swapped them. And I know this because all of a sudden my TV was like, whoa, 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 whoa. there's something new here. And then it occurred to me, well, holy shit. I wonder if this cable happens to be better. And sure enough, I accidentally solved my problem because whatever 15-foot <laughs> HDMI cable the switch was on seems to be good enough to carry 4K Dolby Vision at 60 hertz. And now everything's good and I don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> so you did swap it to a better cable. It just happened to be one that was already in your wall. Exactly. I was going to say it was kind of weird that your previous Apple TV was working, but then I again remembered your previous Apple TV was not 4K. <laughs> exactly right. So... All of this to say, if either for bootleg people or regular show people, all of this to say, as it turns out, if you're having very wonky and intermittent uh, uh, like problems with video dropping out or something like that, it's worth 
first of all, doing the HDMI test in the Apple TV, because that was my first hint. I don't remember if I said this in, in my dissertation just now, but there is an HDMI test in the Apple TV. In addition to the thing that tells you what resolutions the TV supports, there is a separate HDMI test. And when I was on the original HDMI port cable, what have you, it was like, mm, nope, this ain't going to work. And so that was my first clue that something was was not good here. But then, you know, again, when I when I accidentally swapped them and ended up accidentally solving my problem, I did the HDMI test again. It was like, oh yeah, you're good, you're good to go. So this not too cheap, eight K theoretically eight K capable uh, HDMI cable that's on on its way from California to me, uh, it will probably eventually have to go in the wall, and I and I will do it one day. But the good news is I don't have to do it today. So all told. I'm mostly good to go. That being said, I have a request for the listeners. Now I'm in a situation where I think I need, I think I need a second amplifier. But what, what I really want to do is the following. I want to be able to have maybe the kids, for example, watching something on TV indoors using the receiver that, you know, does the, the indoor TV and all that. And currently, that same receiver is actually doing the outdoor speakers as well. I just choose whether or not I want it to play on both sets of speakers or, you know, one or the other. But I don't like that because, A, if the kids want to go in and watch TV and I want to listen to something outside, we can't do both of those things at the same time. And B, the way I have things set up right now is that I don't have any remote volume control if I'm playing, like, it's, for example, if I'm playing something on Plex, like a concert or what have you, and I'm broadcasting it outside. So I feel like what I might want is a second amplifier to drive the outdoor speakers. And Sonos I'm not amp. sure. Say that again. Sonos amp. If you just get a new receiver, all modern receivers have multiple zones or all sort of medium to high end ones have multiple zones and that will solve this problem. Well, so that's, that's the thing is I don't know if I want a new amp. And the reason I say that is because one of the things I do like about this amp is that it's very stupid. It just plays whatever comes in over Toslink and doesn't have to like extract it out of HDMI. It doesn't have to, it, I don't have to worry about if in 10 years, <laughs> well, if I, they're, they're receivers that are on amps, Casey, first of all, oh, sorry, second of all, yes, they're yes, all yes. extremely dumb. And by the way, I'll put a link in the show notes to this tech hive article that has a nice chart showing the difference between Toslink and HDMI arc and HDMI eARC. Uh, the summary is Toslink is 384 kilobits per second and HDMI eARC is 37 megabits per second. <laughs> Toslink is good for like stereo CD quality sound, maybe? No, yes, that's what it was designed for. It's it's the optical version of Spitif, which is designed exactly for CD quality sound. So, but if you're watching movies on your television that have like Dolby Atmos 7.1 tracks, don't use Toslink. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> So anyway, you need a new receiver. Regardless of whether of this situation you're describing, you need a new receiver. Now, maybe you want two receivers or a Sonos amp, like Marco's saying or whatever, but you need a new receiver for your TV. And when you get that new receiver for your TV, it might solve this problem for you by having multiple zones. And if it doesn't, then you have other options. Well, and so the thing is, I mean, maybe the Sonos amp is the right answer, but I mean, $650, hell no, it's not the right answer. Holy <laughs> you God. Can get, you can get a decent receiver for that much. Yeah. No, the, the reason why I suggested that is because... It is kind of beautifully dumb the way I use it, which is probably not the way you'd want to use it. Um, but the way I use it is it is my TV receiver. I power only two speakers. I will never want surround. Um, so it, it's great at powering only two speakers plus optionally a subwoofer. You will want surround someday. Just wait. I haven't yet. Uh, you say that, but I've been in this house for 13 years, 14 years, and I haven't had su- a surround sound that entire time. Yeah, um, and w- what I like about it is that 
as input, it, it either has, you know, regular analog RCA jacks, or it has an HDMI port, uh, and, and it's, which supports ARC as input. Uh, and you actually can buy a little adapter to, to convert that into an optical in if you need to um, for, for your setup, but you probably wouldn't. I would recommend running HDMI directly into it. And what's nice about it, this is the part that kind of that made me think of it for you, is that you said remote volume control. Yeah. And what's nice about the Sonos amp is that there is no remote control to it. You control it via digital things, via network. And it is an it is a AirPlay 2 native device. And so what this means is you can AirPlay something to it from your phone. So can anybody else on your Wi-Fi network. And mm-hmm. then you just control it from the AirPlay 2 interface and control center on your phone. And you never have to use the terrible Sonos app. Like you can, I never do. You literally just control it as an AirPlay device or as a TV input device. And it, it correctly switches between them. Like, like if, if it receives an audio signal over the HDMI port, that takes priority over, over uh, anything else. Um, so like if you're playing AirPlay and then somebody wants to watch TV, it'll take over you know, with, with the TV. It's a very well-implemented device for a very narrow set of requirements <laughs> that I happen to fit. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love the Sonos amp for this purpose because then I don't need a separate amp. I don't need a separate receiver because I don't the – other, the other features that receivers tend to offer are all things I don't really need or want. Uh, and the Sonos amp is a really nice product for exactly like if you want a optionally TV-connected two-channel, <laughs> you know, two-channel speaker amp that is also AirPlay 2 and has no other requirements, it's fantastic. And I don't know of anything else in the market that is that is like that. Well, and so that's actually, it's funny you bring that up because people have been making, uh, have been excited about this thing, the Belkin Soundform Connect, which appears to be basically an AirPlay 2 receiver, not an, not an amp, but an AirPlay 2 receiver with, you know, digital optical out that you would still have to plug into something. So... I wonder if what I, and this is a hundred bucks, which is kind of expensive for what it is, but it's within reason. Oh no, trust me. That's fantastic because that product has not existed until this point. Right. Like, that I'm so happy this product has finally launched because it's been, I think they announced it like a year ago <laughs> and it finally <laughs> has, has officially launched. I really could have used a couple of these over the last year. So, so my question is, you know, do I use this? I actually do have an airport express that I haven't used in like 10 years sitting around somewhere. Like, do I use that? And, and, and it, the question then becomes, what do I plug either an airport express or the Belkin Soundform connect? What do I plug it into? I need some sort of amplifier to drive presumably the outdoor speakers, but here's the kicker. And this is where I really don't want a $650 amp that, that Sonos makes, but your point is fair. How do I control the volume remotely? Because I really, really, really want to do that. The whole point of half the stuff I've done in the screened-in porch, we actually have an update about that for the after show, but half the stuff I did in the screened-in porch, I really wanted to be able to control via my phone. And it's already been a bear, even though we've only had the, the outdoor speakers connected for like a week. It's already deeply frustrating me that I have to get up off my butt and go and walk inside the house to adjust the volume. It's really frustrating me. So... If you, the listener, know of a preferably cheap, because sound fidelity you. doesn't matter. I don't care. No, I, honestly, the, the Belkin Soundform Connect thing, that, this might be your answer. If you feed that into any cheap amp, that will give you what you want. And you can get, a, you can get an amp to drive two speakers, you know, I mean, what kind of power output you really need here? Like, I think like 50 watts would be fine for what you're doing with it. Like, Probably. But, but how do I get the sound control or the volume control? Through AirPlay. That's your volume control. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. See, this is why I have you around. 
the the nice solution to this is the Sonos Amp for six hundred fifty dollars. The the cheap <laughs> the solution, <Casey> solution. <laughs> yeah, the the cheap solution to this is probably a Soundform Connect and whatever like cheap fifty watt two two channel speaker amp that you want to plug it into. You can get those for like fifty sixty bucks on Amazon. They're, you know the little desktop ones or whatever. Like the, those are easy to find. Keep the amp at a fixed volume, a high fixed volume. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. And then mm-hmm. just use the line input from or the line output from the from the Belkin mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. and control it via AirPlay. It's not an incredibly elegant solution, and and if it's a if it's a terrible enough amp or if the Soundform Connect has terrible enough output, you might hear hiss noise at low volumes uh, because it because the the amp will be fixed at a high volume. Right. Uh, but but it would have to be pretty terrible for you to hear that. Um, but that is that is the cheap solution, and that could be like hundred and sixty bucks. Yeah, so I, I like I like this idea. I, I think that's a very reasonable thing. And again, for my priorities, I don't. I, I'm not saying you, Marco, or you, the royal you. Your priorities may be very, very different. But for me, I don't need flawless audio fidelity. These are outdoor speakers. Th- this is the worst possible place to get good audio fidelity. I just want to be able to hear stuff that I'm beaming from somewhere, and I would like to be able to hear it with a volume control that I can do via like a phone. And I think you're right, Marco. I think this paired with some sort of amplifier that's not a complete and utter piece of crap would probably do the trick. Sounds like you need a big HomePod. <laughs> well, I've already got Solve the Solve your problem. It just plugs in with one cable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you control the volume from anywhere. It's mm-hmm, independent mm-hmm. of your television. It's got an amplifier. Yeah, but I can't mount the HomePod up at the ceiling, which is where I've mounted these. You have to mount it anywhere. Just stick it anywhere in the in yeah, your yeah, screened-in yeah. porch, and you're all done. They aren't exactly outdoor-rated either. Well, that's very true as well. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> sure. Just put it in the middle of the porch, away from the sides. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, so anyway, so listeners, all kidding aside, I like what Mar- Marco's got going here, but if you have a... A solution that, and I, I think I'd like to spend like no more than two hundred bucks on this. If you have a solution that you think would work, uh, please, you know, send me an email or, or tweet at me because I'd love to hear. This is one of those times where I really do want to hear input. If you think that uh, you have a different way of handling this, I'd love to. Or if you have an amplifier that you recommend, or whatever the case may be, um, please let me know. I'd be I'd be interested to hear. I agree with you, Marco, that the Sonos is probably the rightest answer. No, no, it's not because I don't want to hear you complaining about the price for the next six months. Ex- so <laughs> exactly, so right. just yeah, do <laughs> my so do true. my cheap solution, and then if it sucks, you can just return the things to Amazon. That's true. I mean, what what many people would do is just use a Bluetooth receiver instead. But I, I don't like Bluetooth for this purpose. Not only not for sound quality reasons. Like I couldn't care less about that for in this kind of context. But um, because Bluetooth is annoying to pair to, and if you want to have like yep. more than one device that can send it audio, like AirPlay is so much nicer for that. Like if you have multiple people in your house, or if you want to send it from multiple devices. Like what if you want to play something from your iPad once, and then the next day you want to play it from you know your spouse's phone? Like Bluetooth sucks for that. And AirPlay is fantastic for that. So that's that's why like I would highly suggest staying you, using AirPlay as your protocol here, and just figuring out then what the hardware has to be to do that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Linode and Memberful, and thank you to our members who can support us directly at atp.fm/join. Thanks, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Oh, it 
was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T, Marco Armin, S I R A C U S A Syracuse. It's accidental. So I have a brief bit of a follow-up with regard to the porch and my fans. So if you recall, I was trying to figure out a way to get two ceiling fans, two Kickler ceiling fans to work with HomeKit. And they use this like proprietary RF thing to go from the wall to the fan. So obviously the wall is connected to the fan, but in terms of control, uh, they, they use you know radio frequency to control between the wall, the, the thing that you're touching on the wall and something internal, to, well, not internal, but like sitting right above the fan. And my theory, after a lot of talking with many different people on the internet, and I mean, it was genuinely extremely helpful. So thank you to everyone who reached out. But my theory was, and, and several people suggested this, what if you just remove the RF receiver from the equation? So instead of the wiring being from the fuse box to the wall unit to the RF receiver to the fan, just take out the receiver. So it goes from fuse box to the wall to the fan, and that's it. And then put my beloved uh, Lutron Caseta fan controls as the switches. And this, I think it was this past weekend, uh, we finally got around to remounting the fans. My dad and I did. We removed the little RF controller boxes, and sure enough, no problem because they're AC fans. It works no sweat. So my beloved Lutron Caseta switches can control fan speed. I can do that from my butt when I'm sitting on the porch, and it all works lickety split. And I didn't have to do anything like the Bond um, like RF repeater thing, which we had talked about, where it will receive something from HomeKit and then repeat that as an RF signal. I didn't have to bother with any of that, and I'm really, really excited about it. So if you're in a, and if, if you're in the situation where you have a fan that you want to make HomeKit capable, I can't guarantee this will work. Your mileage will vary. I'm not a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. But what we did was pulling the RF receiver from the fan, and, and it was an external thing. It's not like I'm removing the internals of the fan. It was this box on the outside. We pulled it from the fan, and now I can control the fan via, via the Lutron Caseta switches, and I'm super happy about that. Cool. Are your fans still in danger of giving you a haircut? No, actually. So if you recall, um, the fans were way, way, way too low. And I don't remember how much of this I actually talked about on the show, but uh, we were talking and we had, oh, we had a heck of an experience with uh, an electrician for all this work. Our, our builder to do the physical construction was amazing. I, I love this guy. He was so great. Uh, the electrician was kind of awful. And <laughs> can, can I give a quick aside here? Yes, Just please. A very quick aside. Yes. To any of you out there, if you or someone you know is looking for a career change, become an electrician or a plumber. Oh, yeah. You will never be out of work again. If you're good. If you're good. No. And if you charge. If you're oh, just, actually, that's true. If you're just if you're, certified and available. No, that's true. You're there right. are so many. The, the, like in, in you know both places I've lived recently, there has been a massive like over demand and and short supply of electricians and especially plumbers, um, but both trades really like 
and and those jobs like you can charge pretty much whatever you want because people need you so badly and there's not enough of them and and really like if if you're looking for a job that can that can never be you know easily outsourced to other places or that you know that's always going to be in demand that's always going to be needed in the economy become an electrician or a plumber i'm telling you there we are so short on those in so many areas and so that that's like job security for life right there yeah no i couldn't agree more and in fact i think part of the reason my experience with this electrician who by the way came extremely highly recommended from the same individual that recommended the builder that that did the that did the job and again i loved the builder um the electrician i think that his company was just spread way too thin and so what i think ended up happening is we got the jv squad for doing most of the build and it was like two steps forward one step back two steps forward five steps back two steps forward three steps back and it was just awful and eventually we were like look whoever this JV squad ain't working for us anymore. And I hate God, I hate being this guy so much, but we, we can't have the JV squad anymore. Can you send somebody who like actually knows what they're doing? And that's what ended up happening. And this guy, this other guy was amazing. He was great. He, he got everything squared away. Look at split. Um, but when he was here at one point, he looks at these fans and says, wow, those are low. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I know they're, they're really low. I, I forget exactly what the measurement was, but they were probably six and a half, seven feet off the floor. And, you know, oh, those are really low. Yeah, That's yeah, not no, great. We're, we're not sure. You know, it's not great. I don't know what we're going to do about it, but for right now, like, we're just going to live with it. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. Those are too low. Like, yes, I do understand. I'm looking right at it. Yes, I get it. No, you don't understand. Those won't pass inspection. Oh. So as it turns out, I think in the county in which we live, uh, it, the fan blades need to be something like seven foot six inches off the floor of the um, of the of the dwe- of the thing of the room. And when we measured these things, like I said, were like six six or seven foot off the floor or something like that. So they were easily a f- six inches to a foot lower than they could be to pass inspection. And so Aaron and I, being the goody two-shoes we are, we're like, whoa, ah, what do we do? Can we raise them up? Oh my God, what do we do? Uh, and and the, guy, and the guy was like, all right, look, I'm going to be here all day. So first of all, let me just kind of think about what to do about this in the first place. And let me see if I can find any sort of solution to bring these up. Because these fans were not flush mount. I had actually emailed Kickler, the company that makes them. I was like, hey, can I flush mount these? Is there anything I can buy to do that? And they were like, ha ha, no. Uh, and so I went looking for like a smaller down rod, which is the thing that the, the fan is hanging on. And we got one that was marginally smaller, but it really didn't make a, a noticeable difference. And so we were like, I don't know what to do. Long story, well, already long story, slightly shortened. What the guy ended up doing, the electrician ended up doing was he had like some piping, like metal piping that I think was supposed to be used for plumbing or something like that. I don't even know why it was in his truck, but he had this tubing that was really, really, really short and he could fashion as basically a down rod. And so he put one of those in each of the fans and that brought it way up. So it's still lower than I would like in the grand scheme of things, but it's not like you step into the porch and go, oh, <laughs> what the hell's going on there? You know? So now it's just like, oh, those are low, aren't they? Rather than, oh my God, am I going to lose my hair? All in all, it's all good. We have speakers, we have fans. I can control the fans via my phone, which of course I almost never do because the only speed that's worthwhile in Richmond, Virginia in the summer is high. But nevertheless, I can turn them on and off and I could adjust the speed if I so cared. Uh, And so I'm really, really happy about that. I can't wait to hear the conclusion of the story of when this 
quote unquote 8K HDMI cable arrives. <laughs> well, I, I agreed. It's agreed. Be spray I painted gold. <laughs> You're probably right. I should see what it is and get a link for it. Real uh, HDMI ca- buying HDMI cables, to be fair, is not particularly easy. Yeah, they don't. They don't make it easy for like they don't let you. You know, you can't say that an HDMI cable is an HDMI 2.1 cable. You have to use their weird code words, and mm-hmm. they they have these apps. Various manufacturers make apps that let you scan like the barcode of an HDMI cable and try to tell you what it's actually rated for because it's really complicated now, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, newer cable is probably better than 10-year-old cable. Oh, it's more than 10, I think. I I don't remember exactly when all this was done, but it was shortly after we moved in, if I remember right, that we had put all this stuff in the walls. And then my dad and I had rejiggered it slightly, I think a couple of years later. Um, So I would guess this was literally 2010 or thereabouts that these cables came from. So it's a miracle that any of them worked. I put a link in the the chat room, and it's in the show notes. uh, for (laughs) 8K certified, Uh uh-huh. Agree, agree. HDMI 2.1. Oh, is that what I completely agree that Oh, look, it's got the little QR codes. You should get the app and scan the little QR code, and it will tell you something. All right, well, too late now because it's already on its way. I'm I'm sure it's fine. You don't have an 8K television. Like, you just need literally any, any reasonably modern HDMI. My cable. Your problem is that the cables are long, though. You said it's like 15 feet or something. Well, I don't remember exactly how long I need, but my TV is obnoxiously high to the point yep. that John would burn down my house if he... Um, no, I know. We've all seen it. Everyone knows your TV is too high. It's basically on the ceiling. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it is. We have to <laughs> lay on the floor. That's why he has to lay down on a bed oh to God. watch TV. Yeah. How, much, how much space is there between the top of the TV and the ceiling? I would guess <laughs> it's not a lot. six to 12 inches, something like that. And it's, but it, now it's, it's a fairly low, it's like a, I have a normal person house. I don't have like a 30 foot ceiling like, like you do. But, uh, so I think I've, I think we have eight foot ceilings, I think. Uh, so it's probably, I think it's a 55 inch TV and I think it's six to tw- somewhere between six to 12 inches off the ceiling. Yeah, every time you watch TV, you can see up all the actors noses. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I concede and concur that it is not the perfect placement for a television, but given that my room is situated the way it is, and I don't know if Marco remembers, but he's been there. No, I remember. I, I couldn't do really anything else without just completely turning the room into a television room rather than a like living room. You know what I mean? Like, but it is a television room. Are yeah, you kidding? Uh, that's what living rooms are. <laughs> welcome to welcome to modern society. Your living room is a television room. You know, he doesn't want to block that fireplace that he uses so often. Uh, <laughs> Lots of times in Virginia, he needs to start a fire and uh, keep his house you, warm. I hate you so much. I hate you. You're fired and I quit. <laughs> All right. It's been great, everyone. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. <laughs> you don't worry about canceling your memberships. You never know when it'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying bootleg people are going to get scared. <laughs> no, Nobody cancels. If anyone cancels because of Casey. No, take- I'm kidding. For the love of God, I'm kidding. Don't put the children in the middle of this. <laughs> who, are the, wait, who are the children here? Hard to say. The listeners, the children? Are we the children? Uh, yeah, I need. I never. Nobody cancel. I need nobody to cancel because I need to afford this fing Sonos. He has to pay for that a gold HDMI cable he just bought. <laughs> But then, and then down the road, pay for the renovation to pull the fireplace out and just mount the TV on a regular spot in the wall. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the, the head injury from the fan. Uh, <laughs> that nearly. You're going to jump up from your chair uh, one day in surprise. And 
I, know, I kid you not, I guarantee there will come a time before we move out of this house that we're going to be playing cards or something outside, and I'm going to have a really good hand of like, and I'm not talking like poker or something like that, I'm talking like something old man-like, you know, like Aaron and I used to play 500 Rummy a lot out there, you know, when, when we were just the two of us, and uh, I'll, I'll get like a really good hand in 500 Rummy or something like that, next thing you know, I'll jump up, yes, and then, oh god, I don't have hands anymore. I think as long as the blade doesn't hit your eye, you're probably okay. <laughs> like, it's not going to be comfortable, but like, it's, I don't think it's going to like cut your hand off. <laughs> I, I dislike fans strongly. Wait, wait, what's wrong with fans, John? I don't like fans, period. And my wife, oh my, God. Uh, my wife grew up what's in a house where every you? single room What is wrong with you? Because I don't want someone constantly blowing on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, had, but like, yeah, I how do you, like, what I like about ceiling fans is that they extend much further upwards the comfortable temperature rings that you can sleep in a room without using the air conditioning yeah people are just addicted to fans they just need to have they need to have the noise they need to have the wind constantly blowing on them especially probably people also who are often hot right people who really run hot or run cold if you run hot you probably want air constantly blowing past you to take all your body heat away so you don't get overheated yeah i run hot yep same i do not i do not want fans i don't want the noise i don't want the breeze i don't want any of it yeah, but that's because you're always cold. Like, like yeah. it, it really like uh, what I love about fans is that like if you if you're in a, a, a place that doesn't have a lot of wind, which like my, like my other <laughs> you are not in a place that doesn't have a lot of wind, Marco. <laughs> no, but I was for the last ten years, uh, and it's and like it's so nice to have a constant slight breeze if it's artificially oh, created if you worst. can't get a natural one because like no, otherwise if it's like seventy four degrees it's so hard to sleep and that, and that's stupid like. It, and, and I hate having to use air conditioning if I don't have to. Like, I, I, I would so much rather prefer not using air conditioning. Well, so you're saying you only need it in the bedroom? Is that, is that the only place you want a fan is in the bedroom? I like a ceiling fan in the bedroom and in the office. Because those are the two places where I have to, like, sit <laughs> for a long, like, stay for a long time. So you get a fanless Mac and you install a gigantic fan in the room <laughs> with your Mac. <laughs> yeah, it's quieter. <laughs> Oh, no like like in, in in the summertime like i don't like using the air conditioning in my office more than i have to like i would rather like i can be in my office comfortably up to about 80 degrees with the ceiling fan before i before i want to switch over to air conditioning because it they're they're effective they're very good and it saves a lot of energy it, i think it's nicer I'd, I'd rather be in a room with with a fan that's a little bit warmer rather than having to switch over to air conditioning and then have like the weird cold hot transitions as I come in and out of the room or in and out of the house. Like I hate all that. If I don't if I don't have to do that, I'd rather not. So I greatly prefer like if a fan can keep me cool enough and I don't need to use the air, I'd rather not use the air. See, I have nothing. I, I love air conditioning more than almost anything, <laughs> and I just really feel like for my comfort, I need two things and this may make me very weird and i'm okay with that i need moving air almost always it's very rare that i'm okay in in, in still air wow that was way too much rhyming oh my gosh um secondly uh, i really I, I get uncomfortable if there isn't some sort of audio somewhere nearby and i think this is where john and i would never be able to be roommates no no this is terrible you're just combining all the things that i don't like you're, you have a, an easy solution casey Get a Mac Pro and put it on your desk. Just and live inside it. <laughs> turn, just turn it around, like face the back towards you. Do you have the television on? Casey's gonna have the television on constantly at maximum volume with with uh, with uh, seven ceiling fans in each room, all at full blast all the time. <laughs> but all the TVs are gonna be up on the up on the ceiling, That's right? Up on the ceiling, that's exactly right. <laughs> no, uh, generally speaking, like when I'm around the house, whatever room I'm in will have the fan running, usually but not always, and. 
pretty much always there will either be ambient music playing or I will be privately listening to a podcast. One of those two things is almost always happening. Do, do the other members of your family want this, or is it just you mostly? Uh, Aaron has learned to live with it, I think. Oh, God. Uh, well, well, <laughs> it's a no, endorsement. Um, no, I don't know. That's not entirely true. Like, Aaron, her family grew up with, they were big into white noise when sleeping, typically fans. Oh, so this goodness. definitely qualifies John as the people who need the noise. So, like, Aaron cannot do silence. And I used to be able to do silence just fine in terms of sleeping. That is, I used to be able to do silence sleeping just fine. But now after years and years and years of very faintly hearing the white noise machine in the kids rooms, because it's you know, <laughs> being piped through the monitor now when there's silence, like uh, it was uh, right after new year's, I think my parents took the kids for the first time in months and months and months and months and months. And we had a night, just the two of us here at home and we didn't have the monitor on because there were no kids and there was no white noise machine on because no kids. And it was actually somewhat hard for me to sleep because I'm so used to now this stupid white noise. And I've, I've had arguments with Aaron where I've said, I don't want them addicted to this white noise like you freaking are because she cannot sleep you, without some yourself. sort of fan. And now I've now I've, I've done it to myself. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds like Casey should should move to the beach because it, that's got white noise and wind at all the time. That's true. 